5: Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's gonna be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions.
6: Welcome to the It Could Up and Here's Practical Guide, making permaculture happen wherever you are. I am your host for this episode, Andrew of the YouTube channel, Andrewism. And I'm joined here with Chris and James. Say hello.
7: Hello. Hi. Thanks for having us.
6: Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like <laughs> I'm the guest.
7: Yeah, true. Well, you're going to walk us through this. I'm very excited to learn more about it.
6: Yes. So it's, I really see it as a as a key component in our restoration of the earth. And so I find it necessary that regardless of what direction your individual praxis is going in, where, where you're looking to specialize or whatever, quote unquote specialize, I think it's still important to think about where your food comes from and think about ways that we can enhance and enlarge our food autonomy, especially considering the multi-layering crises that are, you know, compounding these days. Permaculture was first coined as a tomb by permaculturist Bill Mollison. It's a portmanteau of permanent agriculture and permanent culture. And it's the conscious design and maintenance of agriculturally productive ecosystems, which have the diversity, stability, and resilience of natural ecosystems. It's a way of integrating landscape and people, providing their food, energy, shelter, and other material and other non-material needs in a sustainable way. And just to be clear, the concepts, the ideas, the principles that make up permaculture have existed long before Bill Mollison was born, have existed in cultures all over the world. Bill Mollison is just someone who has, I guess, given it a spin for a modern audience. But these principles, these ideas, are things that have been in practice for thousands of years. Tens of thousands, even from the approach to land management and settlement design to the whole systems thinking approach to nature, which can be seen in a lot of animist practices, it has a long history, and it's one that people who practice permaculture today, who research permaculture, will inevitably uncover in their learning process. However, Bill Morrison first coined it in the 1970s as a response to the oil embargoes that were taking place at the time. By bringing together the traditional knowledge of a vast array of indigenous cultures and combining them with certain modern design and layouts, it created a, a movement that is now um, spreading across the world. From every, on every continent, honestly. The way that permaculture views um, the world, views systems, it comes with an outlook that recognizes that all biological material is a potential energy source. The aim is to try to trap energy on your land and to use that energy in the most efficient way before it degrades, to create circular Economies and cycles of energy that allow for an actual sustainable agricultural practice, which unfortunately has not been the aim of agriculture, especially industrial agriculture. And so permaculture represents a challenge to that status quo. The ethics of permaculture are primarily focused on care for the earth, that being all living and non-living things, care for all people, thereby promoting self-reliance and community responsibility, so that we all have access to the resources necessary for existence, and care for community, and specifically community, that allows us to be, to think of and approach our society in a way that benefits all people in all life. Recognizing that community is not just our neighbors. It's not just the people who live in our city or town. It is all the living things that incorporate our surroundings and beyond. The way that permaculture approaches um, design, it's a lot of it's emphasis in mimicking how the natural world would attempt to stabilize. Of course, these systems take thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of years to fully develop and age and reach some kind of stable state. But permaculture seeks to learn from you know, these old growth forests and these elderly ecosystems and accelerate that process to establish things that will last generations to establish spaces that will provide for the needs of people hundreds of years down the line. When it comes to approaching permaculture design practically, first things first to recognize is that anybody can take part in permaculture design. Anybody can take part in constructing these sorts of systems. And it can be established, the basic principles can be established regardless of your circumstances, your individual climate or biosphere, because the principles are based on following what nature was doing anyway. One of the first principles involves the recognition of the connections in a location, seeing that a a web is stronger than a single string, meaning that All of these different parts, these different moving parts coming together, create something stronger than if each individual person, each individual creature is trying to move by itself. It also looks at the connection between waste and resources. We all know the old adage that says, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. But when it comes to ecosystems, we should really be taking it quite literally. Because the waste of one part of the system directly feeds into the resource of another part. Decomposing plants and animals directly feed into the fungal networks and flourishing of the next generation of plants and animals. And in that web, in that network, in in those connections, we can also recognize... Principle two that each element performs multiple functions. If we are, for example, keeping chickens, they can be a source of eggs and feathers and protein, of course, but they also produce manure and their daily activity uh, helps to aerate the soil and they also provide insect control, um, allowing your plants to further flourish. Banana trees—they provide bananas, of course. They provide fruit. They also provide starch and mulch and protection and shade, and they hold water quite well, actually. When I had taken a permaculture design course a couple months ago, one of the things that I had learned from the guy who was running it was that he had told a story and he had done this this project in Barbados, and in Barbados he was called to uh, restore a. Uh, sort of like an old sand mine um, because it had run out of sand. Well, it's close to running out of sand. And so the community that was reliant on that sand mine didn't really have any direction um, because their economy, their local economy, had been so reliant on those jobs. When he came in, it's just like, and he showed the pictures, it's just this very, very barren landscape, very dry, very dusty. And I was honestly, in disbelief that something so dead, so destroyed, something so devolved could be as radically transformed as he had transformed it. Um, Unfortunately, this is a podcast, not a video. Otherwise, I would show you the pictures. But the transformation was stunning. And one of the elements that he had used to transform that dry landscape into a lush food forest was banana trees. Because surprisingly, banana trees are very effective. Well, unsurprisingly, banana trees are very effective at growing quickly and providing shade to other plants. And so as these other plants are growing up, they have the shaded banana tree to protect them from the harsh sun. And so the banana trees, while they may not be the top dogs to the forest, in the end, by the time the forest is fully established, because plant trees don't get that tall, they still are vital in that early stage in providing that function of shade that allows the rest of the forest to establish itself. That's really cool. It's very, very, very cool. <laughs> I would show you all the pictures after.
5: <laughs>
7: uh, is there like a place people could see them online, like at Instagram they could look up or something?
6: Yes. So... um If you go on wasamakipumaculture.org, I believe he has the pictures up there. That'll be w-a-s-a-m-a-k-i-pumaculture.org. And if I remember correctly, he has the pictures on there.
7: Yeah. Was it like a sand mine before or something? Yeah, it was a sand mine. Yeah, geez. Wow. It looks like there's no goodness in the soil in the first one, and then
6: yeah, yeah. At
7: the end, it's and so, thriving.
6: To go back into the recording aspect, when it came to that project, a large part of it was just getting that life in the soil. So they were taking, they were getting mulch and manure from wherever they could get it, just to give some life to that soil. They would grow certain like hardy, fast-growing plants and then chop them down after they'd grown sufficiently so they would die right where they lay and provide nutrients to the soil. And that process was what helped to build up that soil. Even before you had started planting the bananas and other stuff.
7: And were they able, like you were saying, they were getting some of that stuff wherever they could get it. Like, um, were they able to get that? Uh, that? Was it like considered a waste product, I guess, by the people they got it from? And so like, I know I have chickens and they obviously produce like manure and I'll put some of it in my like vegetables so they grow, but I'll just give it to anyone else who wants it. Um, is that a thing that they were able to do there?
6: Yeah, I think people are donated. Um, and I mean, I would assume, at least in Trinidad, I don't know what the case is in Barbados, but in Trinidad, there are bus trucks, which pass every once in a while to collect whatever, you know, branches and cut grass and whatever people have put out um, from their yard work or whatever. So I would assume that they would have asked the bush truck people to, you know, bring some of that stuff to the site to help out. Because a lot of people, you know, they just put that in front of the yard waiting for the bush truck to pass. And so a lot of very good potential sources of like, Ecosystem building—that sort of that so-called waste that really resources gets wasted when it can really serve um, a lot of these kinds of projects.
7: Yeah, that's very
8: cool. Yeah, yeah. Something that like I don't know. if, If you ever read UN documents about like stopping climate change, like they always have a giant section about circular about circular economy stuff and about sort of, I mean, basically doing this stuff. And then nothing ever happens and no one ever does it. And so, yeah, it's it's really cool that, like, this is a place where those ideas, which, like, are... If if there's if, if we are going to survive as a species with, like, most of us alive and doing well, we're going to have to do...
7: <laughs>
6: exactly. Sort of ...getting implemented. Yeah.
7: I'm, uh, I'm kind of reminded just on this sort of topic of... Uh, I was in Rwanda uh, in like february of 2020 and one of the things that really struck me with this system of agriculture that they've devised where um they have paddies uh that, that grow rice right like submerged and then in there there are living fish uh and then above them there are like little hutches with rabbits and, and so like uh the rabbit manure helps to fertilize what's growing beneath and then like it's just kind of circular thing where I think they can feed some of the things that they cut off the, the, the plants to the rabbits and it's sort of like, and the fish will help keep the water clean. I think they're like filter fish. I can't quite, yeah. the plants to keep it clean for the fish. It was fascinating. I was like, this is amazing. Like they're not, as opposed to, I grew up on a farm and like, I'm very familiar with some of the larger arable sort of like, growing, uh, like grains in, in the UK and how the, you're relying on a ton of exogenous inputs. Uh, which I was just so impressed with the fact that they devised a system that didn't
6: require those. Exactly, exactly. You really want to, of course, you we will have to get external sources, especially in the beginning, as you're trying to establish the system. But the aim is really to have the system continuously establishing itself and expanding itself and maintaining itself. Yeah.
7: Would it be a system that works mostly... Um, uh, with like uh, plant based foodstuffs, I guess that seems generally well, yeah. to be more sustainable
6: yeah absolutely I, I mean mania is a really powerful source of, of fertilizer mm-hmm. and I think you can keep animals without you know eating them yes or using them anyway if you just want to you know because they, they make good companions and stuff as well um, yeah
7: Totally fair. But yeah,
6: yeah, I would say a, a plant focused system could definitely be. And to sort of rhyme or align with principle two, which said that each element performs multiple functions, it's also important to have each function supported by multiple elements, right? So you don't want to get all your food from one source. You want to have a mix of trees and roots and short crops and cultivars I mean having all your food coming from one source is basically what we do now with you know these monocultures with these this industrial farming that has these fields and fields and fields that are so susceptible to pests and disease that we have to basically drench them with chemicals just to allow them to survive because and the same guy who did the course, he explained to me like this. He said that when there's a system in nature and it's not in balance, they basically send out a signal saying, hey, this is not in balance. Come and fix it. And so these so-called pests, these bugs and stuff, they come to these aberrations, these freaks of nature, these massive fields of crops and... Recognizing that this is not a sustainable um, establishment in the landscape, they try to try to optimize. Right? He calls them. He doesn't call them pests. He calls them optimizers. So, if you have, for example, uh, excessive amount of a certain pest in your system, something's wrong with that system because those so-called pests. Those optimizers are only able to flood your system because they don't have the mechani- Your system doesn't have the mechanisms in place to keep them in check. So you don't have the fauna, the larger insects and stuff in your system that will keep those pests in check. There's an imbalance in place, and that's something that needs to be rectified. And there are different ways to rectify depending on the situation. Another example, and this isn't um, from the permaculture guy, permaculture course. Another example was the, um, this, I believe someone was talking about the presence of wolves in some of the parks in, um, in the U S and how reintroducing those wolves did so much to regulate the rest of the ecosystem, the ripple effects that had on the rest of the ecosystem, um, stabilizing the deer populations and stabilizing, um, the beaver populations and stabilizing all these other different plants and animal species that you would think are not even connected to the wolves, but still their presence played a significant role in maintaining that balance. Yeah. Go, go watch how wolves
7: change rivers. It's literally five minutes and it rules.
6: Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs>
7: <laughs> I just like the concept of rewilding. Is that what, would that be a similar thing?
6: Yeah, yeah, rewilding is basically it's, permaculture tends to be more focused on sustaining human communities in, you know in a balance with the rest of the natural world, whereas rewilding is more focused on helping to rebuild ecosystems outside of the human sphere, at least as I understand it.
7: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me.
6: So with principle three, which was to reiterate, was that each function should be supported by multiple elements. You wouldn't want to get all your food from one source. You wouldn't just want to grow like rows and rows of trees or rows and rows of corn. You want to grow a mix of trees and roots and short crops and cultivars and all these different species and variations that would make up like an actual forest. The food forest is uh, an approach that a lot of permaculturists would advocate. And within a food forest, you would have, I believe, seven uh, major groups. This is sort of seven levels that create a sort of a, a beneficial system. On the top layer, you have the canopy, which consists of the large fruits and nut trees. They provide the most shade and they keep the whole area the climate of the area stable. On that second layer, you're gonna have the low tree layer, which has the dwarf fruit trees. The smaller fruit trees that would fall under the canopy. On the third layer, you would have the shrub layer where you would grow, you know, your berries and other small, you know, plants. And below that you have the herbaceous layer where you would grow different herbs and spices and things like that. And then below that, you have your root vegetables. And below that, you have, well, you can't really go below the root vegetables. But next to those root vegetables, you would want to grow your soil surface crops, your ground cover. Um, Like there are certain running beans and stuff that would help to create a ground cover, which protects the soil and prevents the establishment of undesirable plants, which we call weeds. And then finally, the seventh layer is the vertical layer which consists of the climbers and vines that would establish themselves on the low tree layer and the canopy. So if you have that sort of food forest system in place with all those seven layers, you're not getting each function supported by one element, you're getting it supported by many elements. The same goes for water. You don't want to get all your water source coming from just like the pipes and whatever water the government sent you. You want to have water coming from the rain. Uh, If possible, you might want to tap into the water table, or you might want to, depending on your situation, you might have a stream, or you might be on a hill, in which case you'd have water flowing down. And you want to find ways to trap that water and to conserve that water so that it's distributed throughout your system. Unlike a regular home garden, part of the aim of a permaculture um, system is that it? Just like in nature, it waters itself. It takes care of itself. And so you're going to have to want you're going to want to have all sorts of different sources of water elements in place to provide that water. Same goes for energy. You would want to get all the energy from one source. You want to combine, you know, human power, animal power, uh, hydroelectricity if possible solar power if possible basically redundancy is very important redundancy is very important and I'll say it again for emphasis (laughs) redundancy is very important (laughs) the next principle principle number four is that you want to approach permaculture with energy efficiency in mind particularly your own energy so on the more practical side of things if you You might want to do what my mentor, my guide, had done, which was a zone and sector analysis. So basically, you draw like a map of your space. You outline your daily patterns and the energies that come from outside your site, like wind and rain and flood and fire and pollution and noise and smells and all those different things. You want to look at how you move through your space. You want to look at how the sunshine passes over your space. You want to look at the view... And you wanna try to harness those good energies, whether it be the rain or wind or whatever, maybe the sun and plant accordingly. You don't wanna have sun sensitive plants on like the south side of your property, of your space, wherever the space is. And you wouldn't want to have plants that need a lot of sun in the shade. You also want to divvy up your, your space. Once you've you know done that map of your space, you want to divvy it up into zones. So the first zone might be your immediate living space. The second zone would have an intensive kitchen garden. So that first zone would be a place of consumption and processing of whatever it is that your system is producing. It doesn't necessarily have to be a house. It could be a community kitchen, or it can be uh, campus, clubhouse, I don't know. It could be any space that you're using for consumption and it. The next zone is going to be an intensive kitchen garden. It's a place where you'd want to grow the plants that cycle through more quickly. Um, the spices and the herbs and the different things that you would use on a regular basis. The next zone would want to have its focus on local support, community support, and surplus so this zone um, the first zone is actually technically zone zero the second zone is zone one and so zone two which is that sort of local support space that orchard is where you want to grow um, your fruit trees your ornamentals um, you want to raise your, raise animals there and you basically want it to be a space where you can provide for the local community separate and apart from your own produce Zone three would also have the emphasis on production. Zone three would probably be the space where you have your main crops, the crops that you spend a lot of time focusing on. Zone four would also have a lot of investment in establishing a sustainable sort of life cycle um, for more long-term plants. And zone five would be a space of wilderness, of forest of wildlife corridors that allow spaces of rewilding even within your more constructed site. Having your systems split into zones helps you to reduce the amount of work that you put in, the amount of resources you use, the amount of maintenance you'll need And it also helps you to boost your yields and to recycle resources most effectively. The fifth principle is the use of biological resources. Natural insecticides, timber, nitrogen fixers, whatever the case may be, you want to be using the systems that have evolved to fulfill those roles. To fulfill those roles. You may or may not be afraid of certain creatures. I myself personally, I don't like frogs or toads or really, I don't like most animals personally. I just don't vibe with them. However, comma, I recognize their importance, right? So frogs and bats and snakes, all of these creatures help to provide like a stable system, whether it be snakes dealing with um, rats or Bats dealing with insects or frogs also dealing with insects. You might also want to use companion planting as well. Um, like the Three Sisters method, which is a combination of beans, corn, and what was the third one again? It's squashes. Right, and squash. And that would help to establish, you know, itself and maintain itself. It's sort of like a microcosm of the broader pumiculture concept. And one that has been in practice for hundreds of years. The sixth principle is the practice of energy cycling. Trapping sunlight through greenhouses, making the most use basically out of the energy that flows through your system before it leaves your system. Recycling the organic matter that passes through your system so that it produces no real waste. Um, When I was at this site, at the permaculture forest, I witnessed a compost toilet for the first time and was immediately grossed out by the concept. However, comma, upon being blown away by the product of those compost toilets, I changed my tune very quickly and although I would not I probably would not use a compost toilet on a regular basis, I think it has some benefit um because <laughs> flushing away in a some real power, some real nutritious stuff. Um, of course, there are risks associated with using human mania. Um, but the process that he had put in place involved using human waste um, and then for every certain amount of human waste, you would dump sawdust on top of it. And that sawdust helps to deal with the smell um, so much so that I actually didn't smell anything when I opened up those, those compost toilets. But it also helps to create that balance between the carbon and the nitrogen that is required for compost. And so after that, um, after a tub has been filled, a uh, compost toilet tub has been filled, he seals it up, leaves it for a year to break down. And by the time it comes out, it's just like regular soil. However, of course, safety precautions. I believe he only uses it for his orchards. So, only like fruit trees and other kinds of trees. I spent a lot of time so far discussing these sort of larger systems where, you know, I'm basically assuming you have several acres of land like this guy does. I don't have several acres of land. I don't have an inch of land. Um, and I feel like a lot of people listening don't. So, there are elements that you can incorporate on the small scale, such as grow boxes. You can have deep litter beds. You can have aquaculture systems. And that's actually one of the things that he first established, um, which is like a, a series of aquaculture systems. And it's actually one of the main focuses of his project to this day. But I was quite surprised as to the yield that could be produced from something as simple as a couple of pipes put together with some tomato plants grown out of it. So, I mean, don't underestimate yourself or the space available to you because you might not be able to plant a whole forest, but you can do a little something. Coming back to the food forest concept, the eighth principle is the use of natural plant succession and stacking. You want to group plants together that would give a continual production over time in both the short term and the long term. And like I established, you want to have those layers in place the roots the vines the trees etc the ninth principle encourages diversity encourages polyculture which is something that i'm sure you would have picked up on by now the tenth principle is increasing the edge within a system by creating unique niches that allow for the more rare, the more um, vulnerable corners of life to sustain themselves. And I think that's something that a lot of permaculturists do in terms of establishing their own systems. They have like a special focus or a certain passion project a certain species that they just love and want to see flourish. And so they create these niches within their systems that allow, allow for those creatures to flourish. Principle 11 implores that you observe natural patterns nature rarely goes in a straight line and you may want to make that pattern whether it be spirals or waves or branches whether it be patterns over time from you know the week to the month to the year to repeating patterns in the weather or the seasons You want to be observing these patterns and adjusting your system continually. The early parts of establishing a permaculture system is certainly the most difficult part. But even five to ten years down the line when the system is more established, more self-sustaining, you still want to be playing that role of tweaking it as you go along. And I think that's something that more people need to recognize about humanity. We didn't just spring on to hear like some sort of alien parasite leeching off of the earth, right? We, just like every other animal, like every other creature on this planet, have a role to play in the ecosystems we inhabit. Unfortunately, a lot of that activity has been destructive because of how our socioeconomic system has been structured. But that's something we have a role in changing. And part of that is recognizing that we are stewards so we 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 can be good stewards we can help to facilitate the flourishing of life we don't have to be grim reapers upon the systems that we are a part of and so even as you're late quote-unquote in these long-term projects 20 years 30 years you're still going to be tweaking and cultivating and hopefully expanding these systems over time. Principle 12 reminds us we got to pay attention to the scale of these systems, to the long term of these systems, recognizing that this is something we want to establish over generations. And finally, principle number 13 is be positive. Experiment, small, learn from your mistakes, scale up, bring in more people, Get involved, get more of your community, of your social circle, of your family, of your affinity group, of whatever the case may be. Get more people involved um, in imagining this complex, beautiful, revolutionary project. We have a long way to go, but a lot of progress can be made in a short space of time. And there are a lot of projects already going on with this end in mind. I would suggest just going online, really, and just searching for the different permaculture projects happening around the world. Whether it be the food forests that Jeff Lawton is working to establish in Morocco, or the permaculture, permablitz systems that people are putting in place in Australia, and, or the greening the Sahara projects in the Sahel region across Africa, or the many small-scale projects taking place and large-scale projects taking place across the Americas. There are a lot of people putting in this work, and there's a large community um, willing and able to support as you hopefully embark upon this journey. That's about it for me.
7: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, I'm really interested in this stuff. I think yeah it's it's massively missing in our discussion about like i don't know how to phrase this rightly but uh like making a better world just to give it a really broad sort of phrasing uh and when we often think about like political discourse and when we think about political systems and um, but without food systems we we really like the, our hierarchy of needs is not satisfied right and uh i, I think that folks listening uh can make a really positive change really really quickly and in their own lives and spaces if if they sort of spend some time with this stuff
6: yeah absolutely
7: and it's cool i think um and important too to reference that like so much of this like like the person you named at the start whose name i'm sorry uh, i've forgotten but like um i think yeah it's important to reference that like these are indigenous ways of of knowing and doing and being and living and like you said they've existed for millennia and like going back to that is good um, as part of a larger sort of way of respecting indigenous cultures and land rights and all the other things we need to do 100 percent
5: Ah! it could happen here is a podcast that you're listening to and you know mostly we talk about problems that you should be aware of sometimes we talk about solutions and today we're kind of going to talk about a solution today is one of our famed good news episodes so everybody everybody celebrate and also give your name for the folks at home
7: yay i'm james
5: yay i'm gare Yay! I'm Chris. That Wonderful, was guys. That was perfect. That was that was completely natural, mm-hmm. just just like we practiced. Um, <laughs> so the thing that the thing that is noteworthy and the thing that we're celebrating and also explaining today is that this summer we we're recording this what like a day into September, two days into September. Um, so we are we are yeah, it's September first. So we have officially gotten through the summer. Um, without a right wing rally in Portland that degenerates into a gigantic brawl. This is the first year that has happened since 2017. So starting in 2017, Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys and other affiliated groups would very regularly and they would do it throughout the year, but particularly during the summers. Um, hold protests and marches and these all had different themes they were second amendment rallies rally against Marxism rally in support of the fucking cops the him Too rally all sorts of stupid stupid fucking names um, but the main pro- the main purpose of them all was so that there would be gigantic fistfights uh, between, you know, Proud Boys and Patriot prayer brawlers and anti-fascists. That was the reason to hold these events. And they got increasingly gnarly and increasingly violent until everything culminated in the summer of 2020. And this massive Trump caravan through the city with like thousands of trucks, people shooting paintballs and spraying mace and throwing shit off the back of trucks and then. Uh, a patriot prayer member named Aaron Danielson got his ass shot to death uh by an anti fascist during a somewhat unclear altercation outside of a parking garage. uh What I can say is that everyone involved was heavily armed um and yeah, after that uh there were some more very ugly fights, but um an increasing like thing that happened was that there would be gunfire at these protests, and the next year, um, at an anniversary fucking fistfight thing, uh, a right-wing demonstrator fired into a crowd of anti-fascists in downtown Fort Portland who returned fire and drove him off. He was arrested. Um, a bunch of, there was a big stupid fight at a Kmart in another part of town the same day, a abandoned Kmart parking lot that held a massive <laughs> brawl. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> several of them got, several of the Proud Boy types got real nasty charges from that one, uh, after the police, as they generally did, chose not to take any kind of action. Um, and then, you know, things kind of petered out, um, and nothing There have not been any right-wing rallies since. There was one mass shooting attack on a weekly racial justice protest in Portland earlier this year um, where a fascist fired into a crowd of women who were doing corking duty. Um, He killed one woman um, and he wounded four other people. And um, yeah, uh, he was taken down, shot twice in the hip by uh, a protester who was armed security for that march. And after that, There hasn't really been anything. And this is the interesting... One of the things that's... There's a number of things that are interesting here. But one of them is that this has occurred while Proud Boy chapters are recording record recruitment. Uh, There's more new chapters of the Proud Boys than there were prior to January 6th. And there have been at least 200-something right-wing gatherings around the country with, like, Proud Boys and other affiliated groups in attendance since January 6th. Um, So nationwide the kind of rallies that Portland's been seeing since 2017 got more common, and they didn't happen at all in Portland this year, and that's what we're here to talk about today. I think it, now, there's a couple of things that are have contributed to the current state of affairs, um, which I think broadly can be described as the right is kind of scared to do big events in Portland. There have been a couple of, like, sputtering attempts. They drove through town on their way to Washington real quickly as part of this caravan once, but they didn't go through downtown again. It wasn't like... One guy did fire at people on a bridge with a handgun, uh, which the police did nothing about. But they're not willing to, like, hang around. And I think there's a few reasons why they've been scared off. Number one, they keep getting shot. Um, That has happened several times now. Um, Number two, the physical resistance to them has been gnarlier, as of the fights. Um, People have gotten smarter about how they do some aspects of the fighting involving, like, a lot of property like, spraying paint on people's fancy body armor and shit, which is expensive. And then after five years of ignoring it, um, the state has actually started charging right-wing brawlers with felonies, which uh, has scared, I think, a lot of them off. Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of where we are now. And I think one of the things people should be paying attention to is what Portland had to do, and and both how long it took, but also, like, what kind of things were involved... To actually get to this point because other folks are going to need to be willing to do some of the shit people had to do in Portland for years, which includes like fucking strapping on gear and going out to confront these people in the street.
7: Yeah, I think um, it's really interesting, right? Because I just I know you've written a piece about this uh, for New Lines, if, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. that'll be up by the time this uh, this runs. Cool.
7: Um, yeah, I just read it. I thought it was really good. Um it reminds me of like when we talk about anti-fascism historically, right? We we sort of talk about the high points a lot, and the one that at least I see most people going back to is the Battle of Cable Street in mm-hmm. London in 1936, which people will probably. I know you've had it in Bastards episodes before. Yes. Um, and it's, it's a very similar thing, right? Like it, it's a broad intersexual coalition of people who are like, we will not let you do this shit in our space and we will physically fucking stop you. And if the police try and protect you, we will stop them doing that as well. There's incidents between mostly fascists and anti-fascists like throughout the 30s and a lot later in British history, but it's a very similar kind of playbook, I guess, right? It's like physical force opposition to fascist gatherings, like not letting them feel safe in your space.
5: Yeah, not letting them feel safe and not letting them go unopposed. Because, I mean, one of the things that was kind of repeatedly a factor in Portland is that when the anti-fascists outnumbered the right from the start and significantly, there was a lot less violence on on the days when that happened. Um, And so it wasn't always a matter of people needing to show up to literally fight. There are times when, like, a show of force can work. And I think a good example of that... In recent times, in, in Texas, in the DFW area, obviously, is a hot point for different right-wing groups, including the Proud Boys, harassing LGBT events, stuff like drag queen story hours and that sort of thing. And members of the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club, who we've had on the show, and, and other affiliated groups have been showing up armed in an armor, most recently to protect like a drag brunch um, that was being counter protested. You can see like photos of like, there's a fucking proud boy with a bat with fucking barbed wire wrapped around it. Just yeah. standing and there and in this, like, I, you don't show up with a bat wrapped in barbed wire unless you're hoping you're going to get to bash somebody's fucking head in. And that guy wound up standing oh, yeah. off at the sideline all day long because uh, a bunch of people were there with rifles <laughs> I think that guy may not legally be allowed to possess firearms. <laughs> yes, I also suspect that <laughs> yeah. guy has a felony record. Yeah, because yeah. he yeah. also had
7: a nightstick and like several other like more ninja like meme tier mm-hmm. weapons. It was uh, be- yeah, uh,
5: yeah. Those say I mean, to me, and um, look, if I'm if I'm going to be totally fair, meme tier weapons know no side in this fight because for a long time <laughs> in Portland there was an individual who would bring a pair of samurai swords to every one of those oh. demonstrations. Oh, yeah. And we're, we are talking gas station grade samurai swords. Yeah, did they have the,
7: uh, the oil slick effect oh, on them? They must, they must have, they
5: must have. No, he never drew his blades because of course then he would have had, they would have had to taste blood. That's the rule. Yeah, that's a legal <laughs> <You yeah>, can... <laughs> ramification there. Yeah. Well,
9: also, it's impossible to take the swords out when you have them mounted on your back. It's, it's also you impossible just, it's to It's literally
7: impossible to take it's, the sword it's, out. Let's do the tactical uh, back scratch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's an offensive position. But Um, no, I
9: think it is worth talking about the types of other cities where there have been a sizable amount of far-right protests this summer, especially Mm -hmm. targeted at queer people, um, and how Portland is one of the cities where that did not happen. I mean, we've we've seen a lot of stuff in Dallas, and the Elm Fork people have Mm -hmm. been doing a pretty good job in both denying Mm -hmm. the right Ground to game, but also denying them any of their like fight footage that they love yes. to gather. Yeah. 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 They've they've done a really good job at balancing
5: that yeah. aspect, which is very very challenging. It's very challenging, and it takes a lot of discipline. And obviously, when we think kind of tactically about what guns mean in a situation like this, they're tools that have ups. The downside of guns is that if things go wrong and everybody's strapped, the potential is for things to go very fucking wrong, indeed. Um, the upside is that when you have a line of people with rifles, the dudes with knives and batons and shit are a hell of a lot less likely to want to start a fucking fight because it's the uh, the consequences are immediately obvious. You could look at it as kind of like the protest equivalent of, of mutually assured destruction of sort of the old yeah. Internet, like of, of how the U.S. and the Soviet Union managed nuclear tensions. Um yeah. But. It 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 has been very effective in Dallas for that reason, and I think it's I think the fact that protests became increasingly armed in Portland, and also that there are, it, by my count, at least three cases of fascists uh, being run off or injured or killed uh, by protesters with firearms. That is part of why they they didn't want to do that shit so much anymore.
7: Mm-hmm.
8: I think that part's important too because. Like, I I think there was a real danger after Rittenhouse that right wing protesters were going to see this and just be like, no, we can just shoot these people. Right. Because, you know, you have a situation where suddenly it becomes very clear that the state is not going to prosecute people if like right wing protesters for shooting people. But, you know, OK, if, if, the, if the deterrence is not the state, if the deterrence is if you get to get into a gunfight, you're going to lose and get shot like that. That, I think, has
7: been extremely effective in a lot of ways. Yeah. That earlier stuff sort of hadn't. I think it's probably worth noting as well that like where it's been effective, it's been effective because it's been organized and like, I don't want to use the word discipline because maybe discipline implies authority that that doesn't exist, but uh, like there's been some kind of collective restraint and agreement on rules of engagement and stuff, which, yeah, uh, because I've also seen folks try to do this unilaterally and that does not fucking end well. Like if you're the the one person open carrying, uh, especially in a state where that's not legal, like you're just the one person going to prison.
5: Yeah, and obviously, open carry protests only work in states where that can be done legally.
9: Yeah, doing that yeah. in Texas is different than doing that in California. Yeah, yeah
5: that's no.
7: what I'm here to tell you. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a force multiplier, right? Like these guys have, I think, especially people on the right have like absorbed so much like of this sort of like there are types of male as delineated by the Greek alphabet bollocks and they've convinced <laughs> themselves that they are alphas and that they can win a oh. fist fight.
5: No, James, I, I've seen more sigmas than alphas at protests. you've seen more sigmas? Oh, I, so many sigmas. I've seen a few epsilons, man. I, I don't know if that's <laughs> a type of male. I, I met a real sigma at an anti-mask protest in 2020 who brought his <laughs> AR and a 60-round drum and bragged that he had yeah. 500 rounds loaded into magazines as he, as he protested masks in front of the state capitol. And it was like, <laughs> the people he was protesting were specifically like about a dozen nurses who were standing around with us. It was like, you, got fi- you need those 500 bullets for those unarmed nurses <laughs> wearing yep. signs telling you to mask? <laughs> He's ready for when the shit hits the fan, Robert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, now, no med yeah. kit, I'm guessing. Oh, I I don't believe I saw a med kit. I used to yeah. try to make a note of it. I will say, the right in the last year, I've noticed more med kits in pictures that I've seen. So mm-hmm. good, good, I guess.
7: Yeah. But yeah, like if you are a person who's not like physically enormous or like, like I said, these guys have convinced themselves that like they are somehow like top tier brawlers, even though Mm -hmm. we've seen the Patriot front videos and they're very funny. Uh, Like it's like a force equalizer, I guess. Right. It, It allows people to sort of enter that space without having to be 500 or like, you know, massive dudes.
5: I don't want to focus too much on specifically firearms because I think that's less important yeah, than and not the, the primary lesson of Portland which is what is necessary to stop these people from showing up is consistent shows of force. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that I just kind of always found intellectually interesting is that you know when you when you read about like military strategy, right? Um for every like guy who's actually kicking in doors, getting into firefights in the field, you have you know, nine or ten people behind him who were responsible for logistics, right? Um, that's the only way a modern military works. Uh, when you don't have a logistics train set up like that, things go like they did for Russia at the start of the invasion <laughs> of Ukraine, <laughs> where you have like hundreds of tanks without fuel and shit. Um, when In Portland protests, an average uh, 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 for a large protest, I would say the average was around a thousand people. Now that's a large protest. Often they were smaller but when you would get these big, hyped for a couple of weeks, the Proud Boys are coming to town, you'd easily get 1,000 or 2,000 people counter-protesting. And, you know, it would be probably 10 or 15% who were were showing up specifically ready to kind of throw down, um, and ready to throw down also with some experience doing it. And a a much larger number who were, some of them were there as medics, some of them were handing out water or other beverages, they were handing out food, Uh, there were people who were there just to yell and chant with signs, to like be, you know, moral support, there were people there doing transport, blocking roads, Um, people there doing, you know, um, intel and stuff, filming things. Um, people who were there, uh, you know, doing stuff like um, covering up live streamers cameras with with bubble wrap sheets or we used to have a band full of people who dressed as bananas who would kind of kind of try to distract and drown out the far right. There was one beautiful individual I saw a couple of times who was in black block except for they wore a kilt and they carried a pair of bagpipes. And when like you would get a couple of fascists approaching a protester and like trying to get into an argument, he would walk right up and he would just start playing the bagpipes so that they could. <laughs> That's an offensive weapon. Um, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. But kind of more important than the specific... Uh, you do need, and I, I don't want to like distract from this, you always need a core of people who are willing and ready to get into a fucking fight when you're doing this kind of activism. But the biggest thing is that people show up consistently. Um, and one of the things, Portland had a number of different organizations like Pop Mob, Popular Mo- Mobilization, that kind of existed to... Organize less uh, radical. Um, or at least kind of it, not not necessarily less radical. Sometimes people who were just like because of whatever in their life were much less interested in the actual getting into a fight thing, but understood that the more people show up, the safer it is and succeeded in ensuring that there was like a larger body of people at all of these events. And that along with more rad- groups like Rose City, Antifa, who kind of particularly earlier in the fights was a big street presence as well as did a lot of research and then other kind of newer Um, And often kind of smaller anti-fascist collectives that would organize people to straight up fight. It was it was this mix of all of that that allowed it to be that whenever they showed up, there was always a group confronting them and it was nearly always larger. Um, And it got to the point at the height of 2020, you know, there was this right wing protest beforehand. Nobody quite knew how bad it was going to be. Garrison, you and I got there right as things were starting and it was. the the anti-fascists were outnumbered kind of at the beginning of the day and things got really violent very quickly within an hour or two though, about somewhere around a thousand people had showed up on the anti-fascist side and were organized and fighting. It was a very impressive response time.
9: Yeah. And I think it is, it's the actual. it's the, I mean, people use the word, like the term diversity of tactics often just to kind of defend actions that are more radical um, and yeah. there's, the, there's the other side of diversity of tactics, which is pulling in all of the background support that creates the, the sustainability for more radical actions, like showing up and actually being a frontliner to get into fist fights with Proud Boys. Then there's the, all of the other stuff, like whether that's like medics, other support teams, uh, people playing, doing like queer dance parties to push fascists out of areas, all those types of things not only make the environment more sustainable so people can show up over a larger period of time because they don't get so burnt out because all they're doing is fist fighting. Um, so I think those actions are another are, are a thing that's, it's it's worth not just ignoring those and not just discrediting those uh, because once you have that type of presence and people know that you're going to, that those are the types of environments that you're able to create, when you're outnumbered by fascists and you need to call, and you need to put out a call for support, if you, if you have this kind of reputation that can... That can help get a lot of people out very quickly and help with the with, that actually is like popular mobilization, uh, yeah. that, right? That, that's what that's what that it's what that actually means. So that's how you can get the anti-fascist side to outnumber the fascist side, like we saw in 2020, um, despite that not being the case when it when it, when it started. Yeah, and I think because the, the main thing that ended that fight was the was the anti-fascist side just moving as a massive massive block and just pushing the fascists out of the area like there's as as soon as the fascist line broke and you have like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in portland streets directing the 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 flow of movement you can't you can't stop that the the force the force is too great um and that requires there to be a large amount of people including people who are not gonna
7: get into a fist fight with someone three times their size yeah i think Another thing um, that that maybe is important is that like, and it's kind of at the core of anti-fascism, right? It, it's it, it's possible for people who have not just different tactics but different opinions, uh, like, uh, to create this broad-based alliance and not get cross with each other for not agreeing on everything. And really yeah, accept. or
5: or at least um, stop fighting with each other long enough to drive the fascists out because portland yes. by the way another thing we should acknowledge the portland anti-fascist community it can be quite messy um there are a lot of different factions and disagreements and there have been a lot of arguments up to the present day but you know as a general rule when the right showed up people mobilized and and threw down against them you know despite the fact that It was a mix of folks who were libs and folks who were radicals and folks who were, you know, um, something in between. Um, It was, uh, and again, I don't, this was never a a particularly clean process and it didn't have to be. You know, you could point out, and and if we had longer, we could point out all number of different, like, flaws and shortcomings and, like, things that were, were done that were wrong or unfair to somebody but what was kind of more important than any of the ways in which the movement was flawed was at the end of the day that it persisted that it kept bringing people out and that it kept resisting and that the right seems to have kind of blinked before the left did here like that's what what matters more than anything about portland people
9: felt comfortable enough to continue to come out and it felt worthwhile enough yeah but for the anti specifically for the anti-fascist protests they were able to create those environments that people that that families were felt totally comfortable coming out to, um, and people felt that it actually was worthwhile. Like there was, it was, it was worth it to take an afternoon out of your day to show up and say no. And, and, and if you're able to physically display, no, you can't, you can't come here.
5: Yeah. And that was, um, you know, obviously when we talk about like the difference between doing that against the police as opposed to the right, you know, the police, have a, a more in their current form, have absolutely. like 100, 150, <laughs> have, they've had 150 years or so to dig in, you know?
7: Yes, absolutely. Um, it's a
5: harder target. But yeah, I, I think the fact that, um, I think the fact that, I think one of the strengths of the movement in Portland was that as a general rule, a lot of people who had a pretty diverse set of beliefs all felt this is a thing I can do and should do. This is worthwhile and important. These people need to be opposed in the streets, and that's worth some time out of my very limited fucking free time to go do. Um, And that that is kind of, I think, the primary lesson. If you want to know what other st- cities should take from Portland, it's the importance of developing a community like that, a community information network like that, but also just like a community where people can all kind of, where where people feel like yes it is actually it is worthwhile for me to show up and participate in this right like that's the hard thing is getting across when there's um you know a book reading at a library that the proud boys are going to show up and protest it's it's it, yep. it, it, getting getting the message out to people in the area and getting a couple of hundred folks to show up because if you can get 200 people to show up to something like that there's never gonna be that many fucking Proud Boys at the event. It's gonna be 30 or 40 of them or, or less, maybe a dozen. And if you're a fucking library and 20 Proud Boys show up to like cause a problem and you've got like a dozen kids inside getting read a book or some shit, or it's a brunch, and yeah, 20, 30 Proud Boys show up, you have a huge problem. People could get really hurt, they could get fucked up heading to their cars, they can get harassed, it's scary. If that number of Proud Boys shows up and a hundred, a hundred and fifty people show up to counter them. Um, then suddenly number one, all of the people who are being threatened by the fascists get this feeling that like, oh my God, I'm actually supported by the community that like people are willing to come out and defend me and defend people like me. And number two, the proud boys get the feeling that like, fuck, even, even here, we're even in Dallas, right? We're, we, we might be outnumbered, you know? I think because a few other cities where
9: protests have continued and where they haven't they haven't in portland i think we yet we've seen a decent amount of activity this year in salem mm-hmm. um a lot of blood and and there have been far right protests in salem ever since 2017 as well yes um, and the other place that because because i just because i just did a deep dive into this is there's been a lot of people from the portland area from vancouver um uh, planning to go up to uh, port towns in washington and it's been interesting talking with the people up there about. Um, this is the first time they've really seen a large influx of people, and it's it's people who don't. It's and the Proud Boys who are not comfortable showing up to Portland anymore, but instead they're going to drive three hours to go to this s- small town of ten thousand people. Yeah. Um. And then watching people in this in this local area figure out how they're going to respond to this has been super intriguing. Uh. There's been a whole bunch of people. There's been affinity groups in the area setting up medic trainings for for queer people who live in the town. Uh, there's been meetings between BIPOC groups and like more like gun-based uh, queer groups about how they can mutually support each other as the far right descends on their city. Um, and in some cases, you know, there was people in certain groups. Who at, at previous protests that's happened the past month, they did not feel comfortable going out to the front lines of this type of thing, uh, but they were able to work with other organizers to set up kind of uh, like support, kind of like uh, support like areas, and even you kind of kind of like a, they described it as like a picnic that's like a quarter mile away, and it creates like a buffer zone in between mm-hmm. people who want to go to the front lines and then this whole background of people that's supporting you and it's going to help you out if you need anything. Um, so all the various ways that you can you can incorporate a, a diversity of strategies and different type of groups into countering something that's moving to your city now. Um, just an in, in interesting note based on how much I've, I've heard people talk about, you know, Proud Boys coming up from Portland and, and, and Va- Vancouver just ending up dr- <laughs> feeling they have to drive three hours to other cities yeah. uh, to get, you know, their whatever, whatever they want to do.
5: Yeah, the ideal thing is that they walk away not even beat up as much as demoralized and yeah. feeling like it was a waste of time and money. Ideally, they and their gear get covered in fucking paint or something. Um, and they lost six hours of time on a fucking Saturday. And if that kind of happens repeatedly, maybe they'll stop, you know, which is, which is, again, the goal is for them to, uh, feel like it's not worth coming out you know like that's what the, yeah like people it, it's often said like you know make racists afraid again is a statement you heard a lot particularly after 2016 but it's a little more complicated than that it's not purely about fear it's also it's hopeless you want to make yep. them hopeless you want to feel like, make them to feel like there's no fucking point in showing up and that's the most valuable thing is a victory condition that's that's above everything else is making them feel like there is no hope for their movement.
9: I think that the most recent, uh, as as a time of recording, there was there was this uh, protest on the fifteenth. Um, that was a mix of like turfs and then a mix of far right people. There's this guy from Vancouver called the Common Sense Conservative who runs a little like video blog thing um, that he was organizing some people to go up. And I don't know, it's 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 there was like yeah, it's like thir- thirty people, lots of them from out of state, who traveled up as a part of this like turf anti-trans side. And there was like 300 to 400 people from the local area who showed up and were like no you're not going to do this um and ever since then there's been a lot of infighting between the turfs and the kind of more f- far-right people because it sucks It sucks. it sucks when you have 300 people from the actual city that show up and go no and try to like physically remove you from this space
8: yeah and I think you can sort of see mirrors of this in like the way leftist like protests work, right? Where it's like it, it's, it's a lot easier to hold together coalitions when you're winning. And the moment you start losing, the moment things start going wrong, like all of the infighting comes back and, and the, you know, move, entire movements will just disintegrate. And this, this works the same way on the right. If you can, if you can actually beat them consistently a few times, and you can start like holding on long enough for their, their internal group dynamics to unravel. Like this this is a way to beat them.
5: Yeah. Yep. Um well that's about all I had to say. Not a complicated topic. Anything else? Alright. Well well, as uh yeah. Anyway, go uh go go yell at a fucking Nazi. Um go go damage a fascist's body armor by spraying them with paint from a great distance, you know? Go go uh uh i don't know do something else uh
6: bye
3: it's just being
4: me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters, May 17th.
2: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun, such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid back appeal Available online Saturday, May fourth, at jcp.com and in store Thursday, May sixteenth, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
9: What's Kyling your written house? Oh, in in our in Argentinian cultural center. Yay! Remember Kyle Rittenhouse, remember remember that night where I spent way too much time online finding that kid's name, and then he was arrested a few hours later, and then he got off after murdering those people? Remember when that happened? I do.
7: So are you saying that you're in some way responsible for what we're going to talk about today? No, this is not on <laughs> me. <laughs> this is one of the most truly cursed things uh, that I have ever seen on the internet that, that maybe I- has ever existed.
9: So I, I know people are just learning about this now, but I've known about this for a while because I kind of have a personal obsession with Kyle Rittenhouse for reasons that should be obvious. Um, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been, I've, I've known about this for a bit. I just have never found
8: a good time to bring it up. Yeah, but I guess, <sighs> I guess, I guess we've now found it,
7: which is, <laughs> it's Kyle time. Yeah, it's, uh. It's time to talk about the Centro Cultural Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, which exists uh, in Argentina uh, as part of, I, I think maybe we'll explain a little bit about like what the broader context of these uh, centros is, like what they are, if people aren't familiar, and then yeah. what the fuck this abomination is is all yeah. about. Right. So these exist across uh, Latin America, more or less. Uh, also, I've, I've seen them in Spain, the Spanish-speaking world, but I think that's like a reflexive thing going back to Spain. Uh, and they're like community spaces. They, they they vary hugely, but I've been to different ones. They're <laughs> nearly always leftist or at least progressive. And they're spaces where sometimes people can go and meet, right? Communities can meet. Sometimes they're like cultural events, talks. You can borrow books, books. Uh, Often, like they're associated with neighborhood movements or what we might broadly call like anarchism, but some sometimes it's yeah explicit. Sometimes it's, it's not.
9: It's like a community center type thing. The closest mm-hmm. thing we would have here would probably be like info shops, but those kind of yeah. differ based on what what kind of anarchist info shop you're at. Um, but yeah, they're like like community gathering places. You can pick up books or whatever, yeah. Yeah. and. Um,
7: this one's a little bit uh a little bit odd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it is very much not leftist. Uh, it claims no. to be Argentina's first openly rightist cultural center. And it's run by this guy called Jose Dedman. Uh, he is a poster, right? This is the guy who Many people will have become aware of today. I have spent most of my day watching his content on the internet. Uh, a pr- Good for you. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I, I love my job. Uh, I took three days off, I went camping, and then I just retoxified my brain with this shit immediately. Yeah. Um, it's. Uh- Okay, so Jose Dunman, right? Uh, The reason that we are interested in him today uh, is A, because of his truly cursed posting history, (laughs) and B, because the anti terrorist police in Argentina raided the uh, Central Cultural, Carl Rittenhouse uh, last night. I've got some audio of the raid, which uh it, they went, we, sh- <laughs> we have to we have to play this audio of the raid yeah yeah there were flashbangs there were uh, there were guns there were a lot of uh, guys in plate carriers
9: that's wild <laughs> just some um, That's like the first real time anything related to Kyle Rittenhouse has faced any sort of consequence.
7: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Based Argentinian
9: cops. uh, Yeah. Well, again, they can only do things that are funny. It's, yeah. that's true and, and this is and, and raiding a Kyle Rittenhouse themed cultural center
7: is funny it that is very yes, funny this is extremely funny like this is one of the funniest things I've ever seen as they go in uh, you're gonna see some some of the, uh not only like artistically offensive but really offensive in every way murals uh so <laughs> they're really bad yeah they're incredibly bad the
8: the right is not good at street art. No, yes. I mean, and, and this is this is this is the real problem that they have as a sort of like strategy of like trying to mirror sort of left wing cultural spaces. Is that like as as annoying as like left wing cultural spaces are? Like right wing cultural spaces are like the worst thing to be in you can possibly imagine because there's nobody like every single one of these people is completely insufferable and. Like again, left 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 wing sort of like social groups are always buffered by the fact that they have an incredible number of very talented artists. These yes. guys, like <laughs> the, the, the Donald Trump with the square head, is I I, I don't <laughs> think you would describe it as, as as quality
9: artists
7: who are no. responsible
9: <laughs> for the for, for the murals at the Kyle Rittenhouse Cultural Center.
7: Yeah, he did them himself. Uh, there are, there are videos. Uh- so do do
9: we want to talk about what before we ta- before talking about like why this was rated? do you want to first Mm -hmm. talk about like what this actually is and like why it exists like like where did this come from
7: okay so this comes pretty much out of this uh he he seems to some of his earlier posts about censorship of dragon ball Z. oh uh, my god oh my god yeah which i will not profess i've probably it's probably z isn't it it is it is is, is. okay okay all right. Uh so I've I've given myself away as a non-anime understander at the outset. Uh I don't know why it was censored. I am he claims that it was he uses a phrase like femi bolshe a lot. Uh femi bolshe which I'm guessing is a portmanteau of feminist and bolshevik. Uh and he Oh is god a, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah.
9: <laughs> so it's it's uh, it, definitely an insane. So yes. The feminists are censoring DBZ, and this yep. means I need to start a fascist hangout
7: spot. Yeah. That's that's the journey of this? Yep. well, more or less, uh, I guess it seems to really come out of the lockdown. Uh, it seems to come okay. out of him being unemployed from March of 2020. Uh, there's a big anti-lockdown group in Argentina called Fuerza Unidaria Argentina, um which he's part of and that, that's if you look actually it says like carl rittenhouse cultural center and then it has fueso Nidaria written underneath um and so he that seems to have been a large part of it uh it, it opened relatively recently i was looking for an exact date but i couldn't find it but it is within the last year yes it, it has
9: it, it has been within the year I, I remember seeing something about this earlier this year um
7: just to recap some of the art, maybe because it, it like art's a strong word. Paintings, <laughs> <laughs> Depiction. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no yeah. Art, art. Art requires <laughs> yeah. a few a few
9: things to make it actually art. I, I don't think yeah. this stuff qualifies as as art.
7: No, uh, but it, and some of them I genuinely was unable to discern who are they supposed to be. <laughs> it's uh, really <laughs> difficult. Like. Yeah it's 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 kind of hard to tell who trump is and it's trump like th- this, is, this is this is this is how this is the level of artist we are dealing with here yeah Trump looks like someone out of minecraft or something like his head is entirely square the width is equal to the height uh yeah which but they've they've got uh one of the guys i saw was this guy called malevo do people know who he is I no. do not. perhaps not okay this is probably one that we won't include the video of in the podcast but uh, so he was uh, he went to prison because he tortured leftists as a cop in Argentina in the 70s right mm. uh, and then he escapes and in 2008 the cops come up to his house to take him back and instead of going back to jail on live TV in front of his wife and children he shoots himself Wow! Uh, like they just keep rolling the reporter's like five feet away and they're like oh he shot himself in the head he's down and, he's like- and now he's immortalized by <laughs> yeah,
9: something yeah, but- that looks like a five year old's yeah, incels finger painting like, on the this, wall this is,
7: this, is, this is what happens when people follow their leader Hitler <laughs> yeah it's true uh so there's there's other people, there's uh, Javier Millet, I think he's called, he's like a, he's a classic Chud libertarian, uh, he's an Argentine politician, uh, they of course have a confederate flag, they have banners from the Argentine Gosh. civil war, there's an I'm imperial just... Japanese flag, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
7: <laughs> and next looking... to Donald Trump, like, the com-
9: I'm just, l- I'm just looking at like the front like banner thing, or like the front, like mural on yeah. on at the and there's a horrible, horrible picture of Kyle Rittenhouse wearing a suit that it <laughs> looks so funny. Like it's like from- I, it's the 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 image is just amazing. It's God.
8: Well, they they have. They have- they, okay, I will say... It they're, they're, looks like I drew
9: it blindfolded with my left hand. Like, it <laughs> looks so bad.
8: The one thing, okay, I I, I think they're... Well, okay, their depiction of Bolsonaro, like... It's fine. It, it kind of captures the grotesqueness of him, but, it like, does. he's doing finger guns. He like, is doing finger guns with the Brazilian flag behind uh, him. It's, remember, remember, this started with DBZ. <laughs> You're uh, yeah, R- Rittenhouse's like giant thing has like, what what is it? Is, uh, I th- the two like... the two holes, the the two black yeah. circles on his face. I, I don't thought know. it was an eye patch, but no, it's
9: not. No, I, 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 there's I, like I, two t- or three black circles on the inside yeah. mineral of Rittenhouse.
7: It looks like he's wearing an eye patch or like some kind of night vision optic, maybe. Also, as Magist- a
9: Kyle Rittenhouse expert who spent hours combing through the clothing he was wearing, they have his hat completely wrong. They have here like a reddish pinkish hat. And that's not the hat that he was wearing. He was wearing a tan hat with a, with a white back mesh. Um, and the hat was the reason we were able to figure out who he was because it has a little tear in the front and we were able to compare that to get an exact match onto the suspect's Facebook profile. Um, so the hat is completely wrong. So already they've, they've dropped the ball here on any semblance of accuracy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by drawing <laughs> the completely wrong hat For this picture it's, I'm, I'm, I'm insulted As someone who spent hours figuring out uh, What this guy's name is I'm, I'm insulted
7: Yeah there's all kind of cursed stuff This uh, Abascal the Vox guy from Spain like a, a Anyone who you can think of He's just like a culture warrior Is depicted uh, in, in finger painting style um, By this guy uh, By Jose Deathman uh, So he uh, he came to the attention of the... Author- well, actually, he came to the attention of the authorities before. Uh, it, it will shock nobody to find that he has been sending unsolicited images of his genitalia to women for a very long time. So he's been sending out a lot of... <laughs> Are you
9: telling me the Dragon Ball Z <laughs> incel who started a Kyle Rittenhouse cultural center has been sending out unsolicited <laughs> dick pics? Yeah.
8: <laughs> Wait, I wonder if... Oh, no, well, maybe... Okay, hold on, hold on. I I just I think I think I just had a revelation about this guy. Did you just crack <laughs> this case wide open? <laughs> yeah. Hold on,
9: hold on. <laughs> uh, <did you? laughs> yeah, I can't wait to to hear what you've come up with. I I'm on the edge of edge of
7: my seat. I am yeah. thrilled. Uh, I on the other hand am on their Facebook page, which is toxic as hell.
9: Yeah, their face their Facebook's pretty funny. They 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 have a video. Of a in woman inside, they it Yes,
7: <laughs> when the woman comes and they're like, just to prove it's a woman, people say women don't come here. Like we have a woman so who's offering They filmed like of
9: like a like a five minute video of this woman sitting inside, <laughs> just so there was proof that there was a woman inside this building. Yeah, <laughs> they were so shocked.
7: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very clear that like they had not been expecting it. So he's actually been to jail for gender based online violence i think i figured out how this connects to dragon ball z my, okay. my what
8: okay i, I i'm not 100 percent sure about this my guess is that this guy is like a hardline. um I, i've never actually heard this guy's name said out loud uh vic Mignagona, like truther guy mcvina M- M- Mignagona is like this he was a voice actor who was on dragon ball z who like sexually harassed and assaulted like a shit ton of people um and, and in 2019 like the stuff came out and there was like a, a huge right-wing backlash around him and I, I i really wonder if this is the fucking thing that he was mad about he was mad that he was this mad- voice actor that got canceled because oh he was yeah, mad that he, his he, favorite he, voice he,
9: actor got canceled for sexually assaulting people
8: yeah well so so vic tried to like uh the, the voice actor guy tried to sue a bunch of people with for defamation and got fucking absolutely owned in court and then all of the shit that he'd been doing for, like, decades, like, came out. So it, it would not surprise me if, if this was, like, part of this guy. Like, if this is part of the thing he was fucking screaming about with Dragon Ball Z being censored by yes. the, the feminist Bolsheviks. The feminist Bolsheviks. Yeah. yeah, yeah uh, this that's is the just... worst thing I've ever said. In my, this is the worst <laughs> realization I've ever had in my life.
9: Yeah, that's pretty grim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think a, a large part of this cultural center and kind of the stuff behind it stems out of a whole bunch of, like the anti-communist groups that have existed in argentina for
7: a long time yeah 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 his like so all his videos he has this backpack with like a hammer and sickle with like the no you know the circle and line through it um uh, and he then the, he he stages that everywhere with him uh and he has like um some he has like a bunch of anti-communist graffiti that he he also you'll see him in his uh like in his Facebook profile, it used to say sometimes anti social, always anti communist, and it had like the yellow and black little thing. Um, yeah, and he's he's betrayed, I think the tweet that first like announced it betrayed them as like uh libertarian ANCAPs, which like they have <laughs> mejor, mejor muerto que rojo, like better dead than red. Yeah. Uh, like, that's not a fucking ANCAP. Like, these people are trying to revoke the era of violence against the left in Argentina in the 1970s, right? Like that's what they're going for here
8: yeah yes. I, I think like in, in, in case people are not aware of this argentina had a like a incredibly brutal military data show killed a shit ton of people also like went around latin america training other death squads they had this group called the triple a which was a basically a fascist death squad that yeah. sort of acted as a paramilitary for other wings of the state they mm-hmm. killed a bunch of people eventually they couped the government um, they're one of the people involved in Operation Condor. They drop people out of helicopters. Also, they yeah, it was and, and, really and, fucking bad. <laughs> and 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 these anti these like anti communist
9: basically fascist death squads or some of them fascist death literally squads, fascist yes
8: yeah like like
9: are like the style of slogans and propaganda that they're using for this center is in the same vein as that. They're carrying that tradition in Argentina, and I think people are familiar with uh the nazis people should also prob are probably somewhat f- familiar with the i uh the uh the whole thing with tons of tons of nazis fleeing to argentina um and argentina being very welcoming to a whole bunch of like 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 german Nazis like like actual like yeah, nazi like- nazis
7: <laughs> like-, <laughs> like with the membership card Nazis like third third reich nazis <laughs> yeah yeah so one thing that the uh, that he did, one thing that Derman did, or he they just posted it as we on their Facebook page with um, Las Madres de la Plaza de Mayo. They they are like these mothers who made this weekly protest. I think it was weekly, and they wore white handkerchiefs, right? And they were like, "Where are our disappeared children?" And they sort of mobilized maternity in this way that made it very hard for the state to crack down on them, right? Especially a state which is all about like quote-unquote traditional gender roles or whatever you want to call it. Um, So these mothers are like held up as a great example of peaceful protest, uh, of peaceful protest against dictatorship, right? Of forcing them to acknowledge their crimes. Uh, They're they're looked up to by a lot of people all around the world. And he and his bros went out and vandalized a monument to them and then posted about it on their Facebook, like pretty openly. Like, we did this. Look at us go. Uh, So generally pretty much piece of shit guy uh, uh he claims that the re- he was radicalized by torturous sexual abstinence uh, which was enforced upon him by the government with the COVID 19 lockdown
8: aha uh-huh. mm-hmm. so uh. he's a vo- so he's claiming to be a var not an <laughs> incel of that's damn it i haven't said this in too long
9: I mean, if, uh, if it's forced on by the government, then it is involuntary.
8: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I guess. I guess that's we, okay. So some men choose to I'm just so, going to so, so stop
9: choosing, right, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Stop right, right here. <laughs> here. We don't need to continue this conversation. <laughs> no, should, no. It actually doesn't matter. Right? No. Yeah. <laughs>
7: yeah. He was oh. uh, he was unable to find intimacy with the people he wanted to, and therefore decided to send them pictures of his penis instead. Which and then
9: start a cultural center themed after Kyle Rittenhouse. That's correct, yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to think of like, I, I, I did a lot of stuff on like the aftermath of the Rittenhouse shooting as well. We immediately saw a whole bunch of, uh, a big wave of Rittenhouse stuff in the Better Dead Than Red and anti-communist action type uh, like memes. And I think that this very much stems out of that tradition as well. Of Kyle Rittenhouse being this like symbol of, here is a shining example of someone who actually put in the work to kill communists, quote unquote communists, obviously. Um, and I think that, with with the whole kind of uh, like uh, anti communist death squad framing of this, that matches up with a lot of the kind of the memes that were uh, that were circulating in the weeks after the original shooting in Kenosha, and we can see this as like a physical manifestation of that type of mimetic. Uh, messaging like this is like a it's, a it's a physical version of that uh of course incorporating into just a larger kind of right-wing populist politics uh you know veering onto fascism um and i think it's that's but specifically with like the anti-communist uh action and better dead than red type type memes that were using rittenhouse that is a, a very a very clear kind of uh 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 nexus point between these two things because you're like why is someone in argentina super into kyle rittenhouse it's, b- it's because of this uh we already have this big strain of anti-communist stuff inside argentina kyle rittenhouse was used memetically in this way very easy thing for the right there to use i think i don't know i think um james do you have do you have any other fun facts about this
7: yeah i do yeah i do so there seems to be another guy who does most of this the speaking for them when they speak to the media. Uh, he only gives his name once as Ju, uh, like J U, um, But then he also claims, wait for it, wait for it, (laughs) because he claims to have Jewish ancestry as well, and therefore they can't be anti-Semitic, so Uh um, very troubling. Maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, but you know, I I can't think of another way, it's only two letters, Uh, so extremely troubling. One thing that I did note as well is there is a whole lot of quote-unquote gender ideology talk, right, and a lot of cultural Marxism talk. Uh-huh. So like, here's a guy who's extremely online and is parroting these kind of Ben Shapiro, American right, turf, talking points. Uh, you can also see, like, one, one thing that's very funny is there appears to be a punk band called War Pigs who are selling, uh, I think it's figurines, uh, like World Cup figurines, perhaps, uh, which they are selling, uh, Mundial is the word he used, Um they, they seem to be basically pretending to be him online and selling these figurines, pretending they're fundraising for his center, but then they're obviously using the money for their anti-fascist efforts. That uh, is
9: incredibly <laughs> yeah, rad.
7: <laughs> yeah, shout out to them. Warpigs, uh, look him up. Yeah, they yeah give them some money if you can buy that a figurine. That is so funny. <laughs> yeah, he gets so fucking mad about it. <laughs> he made so many videos about it. Uh, and then the, his parents were... Uh, like, He talks about them as heroes of the Marxist movement and like leftists and like revolutionaries so he's 38 now uh so his parents will have been young in the 70s perhaps but um Certainly, certainly, like, around in that period, in their teens and 20s. And uh, he, he talks about, like, how his parents were cruel to him and how the supposed Marxists, like, bullied him. Uh, how he, uh, he... He says at one point he has Tourette's, uh, and they forced him to do treatments, which he claims curtailed his opportunities to meet women. Uh, but he, he only mentions this once, and he, he sort of goes off on these weird diversions. This is,
9: yeah, it's a lot of very basic kind of online incel type stuff.
8: I, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of trans angle on this too, because I think, so one of the things I think like is not very well known that at some points I will do a full episode on when I find when I'm able to like get enough stuff together and find people who are like really qualified to talk about it. But Argentina has had one of the world's most powerful trans movements for a long time. And I mean, they have stuff there that like, like there, there's, there, there is a law that passed, um, I think last year that were, that like that they have like a hiring quota. So all for public service jobs, there's a one percent hiring quota of people who have to be trans. Like really. Yeah, oh, wow. like, they like they, they have stuff there, like they have done stuff there that is like, like like not even like on the agenda for like any other like trans movement I've ever seen. So, yeah, they, they're they they're very strong, they're very well organized, and the government has sort of, like, has done, a, like, a bunch of, like, genuinely very good, like, pro-trans stuff, like, under the pressure of this movement, and I I, th- I think that, I think, like, in that context, I think this, his, the this fact that he's obsessed with, like, gender-critical shit makes a lot of sense, because that's, you know, that's, like, one of the sort of right-wing things in Argentina is opposing this shit, but, like, it doesn't... I don't know, they're kind of losing that battle insofar as like, yeah, you know, people people have done a really, really good job and fought really, really desperate and sort of horrible battles for decades. But yeah, they're 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 sort of bearing fruit in really cool ways. Respect.
7: Nice. Good job. Um, So, what also is bearing fruit is his posting, because he has been (laughs) raided by... I I would urge you to watch this video, I'll tweet it so people can find it there as well, but uh, a a, a metric shit-ton of armed police, um, and... The, the reason they're raiding him is because he's made uh, like a public threat. Basically, he made this, this about 11 and a half minute video. Notably, he says, our total to support to the Brazilian hero who tried to create justice for all Argentinians uh, and goes on to talk about this. This is with reference to the assassination attempt that we saw what last week?
9: Yes. So 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 last week, this this fascist tried to assassinate the vice president of Argentina. And we're gonna get more into this in our upcoming week of content titled "Assassination Week." Assassination where we're gonna, Week. Assassination yep. Week. Woo! Assassination up, up, Week. Upcoming. We're gonna be a whole week of whole week of episodes about assassinations. Yep. Um, but Just, in, in brief, this 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 happened, and then the people at the cultural center made this live stream ce- celebrating the attack and calling the perpetrator
7: Argentina's Brazilian hero. Yes, uh, it it really was just. Uh, he also like t- t- tells people to rise up and stuff. Like there's some very clear calls to action in there. In the raid, they found a mortar shell and one eighty-four millimeter mortar shell, a drone, and they they've confiscated a bunch of hard drive, which I I do not envy the person who has to go through his phones yes. and hard drives. A lot
9: of dick pics in those. Yeah, they're gonna oh see oh some balls. Boy.
7: They're going to see some pain, Uh, but hopefully that person can get some therapy. And this isn't the the first like this isn't the first time that the state has tried to come after them. They actually uh, there there were discussions about like denying the crimes committed under the dictatorship. And how he can be prosecuted for that, because that was the thing that that they were very clearly doing. So it seemed like he'd kind of been in the crosshairs of progressive legislators in Argentina for a while. And then he went and made this batshit crazy video where he makes calls to violence. He says the left can't ask for non-violence. He says the left doesn't respect democracy. uh, And uh, he calls the vice president a rat and a murderer and says that it's just a shame that she wasn't blown up, and it's only because the weapon malfunctioned that this hero didn't get to do justice for all Argentines. I should have been the Shinzo Abe guy. Like, I'm sorry. sorry. Look,
8: look, he's just just built different.
9: Yeah, he's he's built different because (laughs) he got sabotaged by all of his esoteric (laughs) Nazism. (laughs)
7: <laughs> which we will get more into in the yeah. upcoming
9: assassination week
7: yep we just got to record the theme music and then we'll be there yeah
9: <laughs> the theme music <laughs> yes. yes cut together footage of all of the great assassinations
7: yep this is gonna be half an hour constant assassination collage. yeah these guys are extremely cursed there's more cursed stuff that they've done that like uh, we probably shouldn't go into i don't think because you yeah, like I think you could just understand this is a, a lonely incel guy who's been on the internet too much, become more and more radicalized, and like surrounded himself with people who agree. And it's been pretty funny to watch people prank him for a while, like scrolling down their Facebook page. It's very funny to see people consistently, like, he doesn't seem to be an intellectual giant, uh, but it's also worrying. And obviously, he's advocating for violence against people no, who are already when- marginalized
9: whenever someone starts taking things that are online out into the physical world like making basically a monument like a physical place um it's always concerning it's always it's always one of the big big red flags
8: yeah and 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 i think like specifically the fact that he had both a mortar shell and a drone is incredibly alarming oh you don't like, say yeah, yeah I, I just I, I just want to say I just want to put that on the record for a second
7: <laughs> yeah uh, if he'd posted a little bit less he could have made it into assassination week but here we are amazing
8: am-
9: <laughs> cucked <laughs> by your own posting yep. a tale a tale as old as time
7: <laughs> yeah if he'd uh, stuck to tradition and not posted they did also I uh, just want to know sell secondhand clothes at the center I don't know why I, I don't know what they were going for there but they did All that right. he sure also sold some... coffee Really, yeah Well, Capricorn if you're literature. in
9: Argentina and you want some secondhand clothes and coffee, I can tell you yeah. where not to go. Yeah. Not, to, yeah. don't <laughs> yeah. go to this place, because there's odds are you're going to get raided by police when you're there.
7: <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's much of this place left now. Uh, <laughs> I think they, they it looks like the door has not recovered from their entry, judging by the fact that they've taped a bin bag over it in the photos here yeah hopefully someone can squat this place maybe the war pigs can get it and just host a collection of figurines there that would be based that would be so sick yep if they need money just let
9: us know we'll do a fundraiser so I hope this is a good lesson in knowing when posting goes too far (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) try try to keep your cringe (laughs) online if you're going to do it because you don't want to be this guy no you certainly do not want to be this guy complaining about dragon ball z and posting uh, that results in uh the police raiding your Kyle rittenhouse themed hangout spot
7: <laughs> yeah just uh, yeah, yeah truly one of the weirdest pivots from online to the streets that i've ever seen uh this dude probably should have been in jail a long time ago uh they probably worth noting that like gender-based violence is like the common denominator for people who do other terrible shit and this is not not an example of that
9: yeah, who who could have thought that the raging incel misogynist would also have bad politics?
7: yeah So keep doing uh, family bullshit shit. You have our full support. Indeed.
9: Well, that is it for us today. T- tune in next week, or uh, I th- I think next week, right? Some mm-hmm. next week or maybe the week after for our upcoming week of episodes titled Assassination Week. Yep, it's going to be great. Of course, not not endorsing any political violence or assassinations of any kind.
3: It's
4: just being me. Amy Winehouse, back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R. Under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters, May 17th.
2: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun, such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid back appeal
5: Is in a couple of days. I'm Robert Evans. This is it. Could happen here, a podcast about 9/11. Um. Well, as as Garrison said in the intro, that we're not using. It's about things falling apart. And yes. boy, did that happen on 9/11. Two, two
9: Two things that fell apart. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Um. Yeah. So this was originally going to be a slightly cruder episode than it wound up being. But I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna delve into the script. And uh, Chris Garrison. You guys just buckle in because the reason I have you both as guests on this is that you are both too young to remember 9 That's not true. I which, remember 9 That's a it. lie. What, I remember. How old were
8: you? Like four? Uh, I hope so. Yeah, I was four. But I, I remember my mom, like, so she, she was trying to explain the Pentagon, right? Mm-hmm. And so she has, like, a coaster on the ground and she's making an airplane with her hand. Is this going into. <laughs>
5: Anyway, so as I said, neither of you properly remember 911. I I don't remember 911. I I was at the age where every mem- like moment of it is burnt into my into my brain as is the reaction. So, I wanted you both on this because we're going to talk about how 9/11 kind of became a a, a cult, um, and yes. how to maybe how to maybe deal with that, and then we'll be chatting about Glenn Beck's 9/12 project, which is something oh. I'm sure neither of you are very familiar with. Now. In its sixth season, the popular cartoon South Park ran an episode in which Jared Fogle, who was at that point just a subway spokesman and not a convicted child molester, oh, came to town and announced the start of a new program to give everyone AIDS. Now, he was talking about dieticians and personal trainers to help people lose weight, but everybody heard AIDS, the disease, which led to yeah. wacky hijinks. That's the episode. It ends when everyone realizes they'd misunderstood Fogel and they all laugh. Uh, this leads them to realize that AIDS is finally funny, because things that are tragic become funny exactly 22.3 years after they occur. That's the joke in the episode and went on to become a minor little internet joke that like You know, once you hit that 22-year point, you can laugh about something tragic. We are now at like 21 years and change since September 11th, 2001. And I think if we're all honest, most of us can admit that we've laughed at a lot of 9-11 jokes. We're recording this the day the queen died, and people are like photoshopping her face to be the Twin Towers. And it's, it's so good. It's quite a time on the old internet. Now, I think the first, I think the hardest, at least, that I ever laughed at a nine eleven joke, I'm sure it's not the first time, was this picture of Trump Tower that was t- posted to Twitter, like, right after he got inaugurated, with the text, George Bush, do your thing. It's um, <laughs> still an excellent nine eleven joke. Now the first person with any kind of platform to make an 9-11 joke was the recently deceased comedian gilbert gottfried on september 29th 2001 he took part in a roast of hugh hefner at the new york friars club and i'm gonna play you the audio of that right now
8: i have to catch a flight to california i can't get a direct flight they
7: said they have to stop at the empire state building first <laughs>
5: very now, tame very yeah, tame joke ex- extremely tame joke honestly not a great joke um but it it went on to it was it's probably like what maybe the most famous in like kind of stand up history like bombs um said himself said that he lost the audience more than anyone else ever has um, i think it caused some career problems for him um, he later and said this that was only he, like a few weeks after this, this was days after. So this is at the Friars Club roast of Hugh Hefner on September 29th. Is this, is this where too soon is from? Um, well, yeah, this I mean, I don't I don't know that it originated there, but this was the response to him. Um, and I think it, it's the first time I ever recall hearing someone say that. Godfried said that like the reason he decided to tell a joke this close to 9-11 was that he was personally offended by the fact that anything could be too soon to make a joke about. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this a little side thing is that like after bombing and getting shouted at by the audience, Godfrey, like decided to get them back by telling a particularly long and foul version of the aristocrats, which is a, a meta joke about... Jokes, primarily. Anyway, um, it's basically just being as foul-mouthed as you can possibly be to an audience, Um, and that that audio has been lost to time, apparently, but... Boy, uh, you can watch a fun documentary about the aristocrats uh, if you want to learn more about that. Now, I I think the first good actual comedy bit about 9-11 came out a little bit after this. This was about two weeks after the day, and a couple of months later, at like the three-month point, South Park Season 5 aired, uh, and they ran an episode about 9-11. It has been criticized, rightly so, because there's some kind of racist bits of humor in there, um, yeah, that's not surprising. That's not surprising. Um, that said, it's also kind of a valuable snapshot of history. For one thing, the a huge part of the episode is just kind of like the Afghan child counterparts to the main characters in the show walking around their town as everyone is murdered by U.S. airstrikes. Um, so it is it is not like the it, – it, it, it stands kind of in opposition to sort of the – kind of like bootlicking responses you got. For for some context, the show The West Wing, which is the favorite show of everybody who runs anything in politics right now, ran an emergency 9-11 episode like a couple of weeks after the attack, which was the kind of turnaround you didn't do in TV at that point in time. So yeah, they put no. in a, a ton of effort to have this special 9-11 episode of The West Wing um, that number one in the alternate West Wing universe, there's no 9-11. There's like some vague, like there's basic, basically the episode focuses on like a bunch of kids on a tour getting stuck in the White House because it locks down because some vague terrorist attack thing happens in a, a fake country they made up So when yeah. the West Wing needed to talk about Muslims. Um, and kind of like the breakout piece of this, well, there's two breakouts. One of them is a very racist retelling of the story of Isaac and Ishmael that explains like why Muslims are always so angry all the time. Um, and then the White House press lady, C.J. Craig, goes on a rant about how awesome the intelligence uh, apparatus is and how like what good people uh, CIA agents are and how oh, like boy. the best thing to do for politics sometimes is to have a, a, a guy dressed as a waiter murder somebody with a silenced pistol like it was out of its mind unhinged that's the fucking like So the fact that South Park does an episode that's like, yeah, we're going to murder a bunch of people in Afghanistan for no reason is like not a not a bad response, not a bad thing to recognize about that day. Um, The other things that are like pretty good uh, or pretty, I think, meaningful sort of bits in that episode, it it opens with all of the kids at the bus stop wearing gas masks as they stand in line for the bus. There's a piece in that episode that kind of sticks with me today still um, that I'm going to play for you guys. Remember when life used to be simple and cool? Not really. I don't know. I always found that bit fun. So when the school bus arrives, there's a cop on it searching bags and confiscating items that might be used as weapons. The school classroom doors are reinforced with a massive military grade lock, uh, which resonated more in a time when like school shootings weren't a constant thing. Um, And it kind of hit me because, you know, when this episode came out and I watched it when it came out, I was at middle school, uh, Clark Middle School in Plano, Texas. And on 9-11 and 9-12, the attacks were like the only topic of discussion. Uh, that anyone had. And I have this vivid memory of a couple of girls in my U.S. history class weeping because they were scared that Al-Qaeda was coming for our schools next. Um, yes. Like, this was a, a very real worry for kids that I grew up with. A school um, in, what, like, Midland, Texas or something? No, it was in It's a big school, but, like, I don't, I'm certain that fucking Osama bin Laden had never heard the name Plano, Texas, let did, alone... Do have
8: the... Do y'all have the thing with, like anytime a plane was, like, going down, people would point at it and be like, oh, my God.
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that was definitely a meme. And there was, you know, one of the most famous ones was uh, this this uh, video called Triumph.AVI that started to spread on the Something Awful forums that was just footage of the September 11th attacks set to Yakety Sax. Um, and again, these were all kind of... The 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 comedy that, that you know that South Park put out here and that you saw in stuff like the Triumph video were reactions to how fucking seriously everybody else took 9-11, right? Like I have to I have to point out that like watching an episode like this or watching something like Triumph felt like legitimately transgressive in the days and weeks after 9-11 because it was kind of a as we'll talk about, had turned into kind of like a secular cult. Um, And I think people who were just a few years old then, uh, or born after 9-11, missed this part of 9-11. I think you inherited the wars and the intrusions on civil liberties and the creeping fascism, but not the derangement by terror that had preceded it. Like, everybody's permanently deranged from 9-11, but you didn't really get to know people before that kind of happened and drove a lot of them mad. As a kid, it was like a strange and exciting and scary moment, but I, I think my parents, and I think the people who were kind of in their age range um, completely lost their minds. And oddly, that, that South Park episode has kind of the best depiction of that too. There's a scene in which uh, Stan, who's one of the main characters, they're all like middle school kids, walks into his house and sees his mom like lying on the couch, staring blankly ahead. Um, and just like weeping. She's surrounded by tissues. She's been crying for days. Um, and as her husband says, she's just been watching CNN for like the last eight weeks straight. And the, the image of her just kind of like lying on the couch, staring at the TV is, I, I can remember every adult that I knew as a kid doing that. And it, it, it really did go on for days. Like people moved around as if they were like in kind of a shocked stupor. I'm sure there's places where this wasn't the case. Um, But for my family, who were very, very conservative people, and I think for people particularly who live closer to the attacks, like, it was just this period of, um, like, post-traumatic stress for the entire country. I I think a good amount of research backs up the fact that this, it had this kind of, and I think it is hard to understand if you weren't there, impact on people. I found a Pew Research study that I'm going to quote from now. Uh, Our first survey following the attacks went into the field just days after 9-11. From September 13th to 17th, 2001, a sizable majority of adults said they felt depressed. Nearly half said they had difficulty concentrating, and a third said they had trouble sleeping. It was an era in which television was still the public's dominant news source. 90% said they got most of their news about the attacks from television, compared with just 5% who got their news online, and the televised images of death and destruction had a powerful impact. Around 9 in 10 Americans agreed with the statement, I feel sad when watching TV coverage of the terrorist attacks. A sizable majority, 77%, found it frightening to watch, but most did so anyway. Fear was widespread, not just in the days immediately after the attacks, but throughout the fall of 2001. Most Americans said they were very, 28%, or somewhat, 45%, worried about another attack. When asked a year later to describe how their lives changed in a major way, about half the adults said they felt more afraid, more careful, more distrustful, or more vulnerable as a result of the attacks. And I think you can't separate this because the main people we're talking about here, when we're talking about the response to this, when we're talking about the people who got to make decisions, it's boomers, right? Which is not all that different from how it is today, but even it was even more so boomers then. And, you know, my parents and the people of their generation are all children of the Cold War. They both grew up, my parents, on different military bases. Um, and I can remember... You know, my dad told me stories about doing like duck and cover drills as a kid, like literally hiding under a desk to get ready for an atomic bomb. Um, His family like went out into the countryside during the Cuban Missile Crisis to hide because they were afraid all the cities were going to get nuked. And this is not these are not uncommon experiences. So you have to think like all of the all of the adults were either very close to this period or had spent most of their formative years, like, constantly scared of being murdered by a nuclear weapon. Um, There have been clinical, like, studies and stuff that have shown that that fear of nuclear annihilation is a major factor in anxiety. Like, it's not ever been properly, I think, explained how much that fucked up that generation, but... What you had is all these people who had spent the first couple of decades of their lives living with the sword of Damocles over their heads. And then the war ends, right? The Cold War ends, the USSR falls apart, and suddenly people aren't talking about nuclear warfare for the first time in anybody's memory. Um, And I think for most of that generation, they felt safe for the first time. There was this kind of celebration that was pretty bipartisan, that capitalism and democracy had triumphed and that like this kind of horror that had stalked through their childhood had been defeated. You know, when people like uh, Francis Fukuyama talked about the end of history, what Fukuyama meant was that liberal democracy was kind of, in his eyes, the end of the evolutionary road for states, which yeah. is a flawed idea. But the interpretation that I think people like my parents had was that we didn't need to worry anymore, right? Like yeah. that, that's the end of history, right? Our way of life had won, and we, like, we, we didn't need to worry. And in 9-11 happens. And suddenly, this decade or so of relief from that all ends in a minute and all of that fear that they lived with their whole lives came roaring back with abandon. 9-11 was like the emotional equivalent of splitting an atom and and the energy yeah. that was released by that is going to be used for something, right? I, I, I want
9: to kind of touch on that a little bit because I mean, I obviously don't remember the '90s because yeah. I wasn't there, and it is such a fascinating idea to me of like this time where neoliberalism kind of reached their paradise. Like, like we did yeah. it. We could. We 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 did the thing. We found the spot, and how that you know talk about like the edge of chaos theory. How it was built up to this super high point, and then it all because because it, it got so high, it then immediately crumbled. Yeah. Um. And shot down. And th- th- there's this uh thing that um uh, one of my favorite uh, writers, Grant Morrison, talks about how. kind of became this moment where the world of imagination and the world of like the lowest material visceral reality uh, crashed into each other. Um, And he says, uh, quote, "The, "...the collapse expressed itself in the material world when the twin towers of the World Trade Center were reduced to dust by determined extremists. When this event occurred, reality and fiction began their slow collapse into one another." after the fall of the towers quote-unquote reality became more fictional and quote-unquote fiction became more realistic think plausible realistic superhero movies like the dark knight films uh, fake news deep fakes ar uh, vr and the rise of magical thinking um and i would extrapolate that out to like stuff like you know QAnon, um and you know the the, how just these uh, images that we thought were only viewable in film and television um became b- b- descended down onto the onto the dirtiest most visceral material plane um and then things that were fake like this idea of, like the perfect 90s it's going to be this is going t- yeah. to continue like this forever that fiction uh it, it felt almost more real like it like that 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 should have been what's real and it's not anymore
5: yeah it it feels like there's an alternate, and i think that's part of why Liberals are still so goddamn in love with the West Wing. And by the way, I talk about liberals. My parents, who loved Ronald Reagan more than life itself, watched every episode of that show. They thought it was wonderful. And the Republicans are always portrayed very sympathetically on the West Wing, right? It's yeah. very much this noble opposition sort of idea. Um, and uh, the, the, that, I, I think there's something in that, that there's this almost sense that we've been locked out of the right reality and that's yeah. that's what you know that's what liberals are constantly harkening back to with with 9/11 but it's also or with a with stuff like the west wing but it's also like what conservatives it, i think for a while they were looking for that i think that's what george w bush promised and failed to deliver yeah. um it's what they were hoping to get with romney and when that didn't happen i think part of what's going on with trump is this desire part of the desire to burn it all down is the inability to get back to this imagined pre lapsarian yeah, world.
9: If you're talking about the collapse of reality and fiction going into each other, that's what Donald Trump represents. He is this yeah. so fictional person that, in order to meet this new world where reality and fiction are the same thing, you need somebody that under that that represents that. Yeah. Um, so they turned to him because he he was meeting the way they they saw the world was going. The, the reality and yep. fiction are going into each other, so you're going to get the reality television president, yeah. um, who 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 kind of embodies that essence on a very, very visceral level.
5: And I, I think that's part of why when you have 9-11 happen, when you have all of this energy released, both parties kind of come together in this idea that the United States should strike back uh, and that we were at war. It's rightly pointed right. out by people that particularly the protests against the Iraq war were massive and they were, they were historically large, but... President Bush was also the most popular president of our lifetime, briefly, and it's because people were in line behind this idea that we need to hit someone.
8: Well, and 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 I think something that's important about this that's completely forgotten is that the invasion of Afghanistan, there was like no protests. Mm-mm. There were there were a few, but like yeah. the, the left imploded. Like yeah. here's, I'm, I'm gonna read a quote from Doug Henwood. This is an attack on us. There is a near certainty that something will be done soon. Clearly, considerable use of force will have to be used to capture these motherfuckers. Um, it, like, a- Adolf Reed is, like, talking about how, like, there's going to have to be military action. Like, a, a bunch of the people from, like, who, like the-, the old school, like, anti-Vietnam War protesters, mm-hmm. like, from SDS are like, well, we don't oppose all wars, we just oppose bad wars, so, like, here, we should go evade against it. Like, everyone lost their minds yeah.
5: well and I, I want to what I really the core of when I talk about today is why that happened because I, I think there's on particularly kind of some of the more superficial left-wing analysis of this this idea that like George Bush did what he did in response because he's like this Christian holy warrior Um and there's a couple of reasons people do this including the fact that he once referred to the invasion of Iraq as a crusade but as a general rule What Bush did was not because of his Christianity and had nothing to do with any kind of conflict with Islam in particular. What it was, was the reaction of a group of a kind of fundamentalists, fundamentalists of belief in the American state, reacting to an attack on the sanctity of that kind of idea. Um, And this is this is, you know, why. All these liberals were on board, at least with, you know, the strike on Afghanistan or attacking Afghanistan. Christopher Hitchens, probably no one embodies like what happened to a lot of the left better than Hitchens. Hitchens was a well-known liberal journalist. He wrote an excoriating book about Henry Kissinger, right? He's one of these people who was criticizing the empire, who was attacking it for its excesses, for builds his career on that. And then 9-11 happens. And the first big thing he does is he puts out a massive column titled Bush's Secularist Triumph in which he argues that the War on Terror is not a crusade, but a battle to keep religion and public power separate. And I want to quote now from a study published in the Journal of Political Theology by William Kavanaugh of DePaul University. It's titled, The War on Terror, Secular or Sacred? There may be some Christians who think that we are fighting for Jesus, but the battle is being won in the name of secularism. George Bush may subjectively be a Christian, but he and the U.S. armed forces have objectively done more for secularism than the whole of the American agnostic community combined and doubled. While the left makes apologies for religious terrorists, the right supports their obliteration to protect our secular state. Secularism is not just a smug attitude. It is a possible way of democratic and pluralistic life that only became thinkable after several wars and revolutions had ruthlessly smashed the hold of clergy on the state. We are now in the middle of, n- of another such war and revolution, and the liberals have gone AWOL. That's Kavanaugh's summary of, uh, 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 Hitchens's article but like what's going on there is really interesting because Hitchens is proceeding as an a priori assumption that the attack on the Twin towers is an attempt by a theocracy to take over and destroy a secular state rather than an attempt to damage economically a military enemy um, and goad it into a war that would weaken it socially, Militarily and economically, which is exactly what had actually happened. The liberals that Hitchens attacks his former allies are basically saying Don't take the bait, right? Don't do the thing that he wants you to do because it will it will lead to the results He wants to achieve all Hitchens can see is that like Muslim extremists are scary and they want to hurt him as an atheist
9: Religion is doing things that hurt me. Yeah, so I must destroy the people who believe in this thing. Yeah,
5: and it's interesting because everybody all of the people who are kind of on the side of this civic religion, which is which is why they're responding, because their their civic religion has been attacked in this strike on the towers. They all find kind of different ways to justify it. Hitchens is a prominent atheist, so it makes sense that he kind of sees it as a fight against theocracy. If you go through a lot of footage of news anchors in the immediate wake of the attack, Garrison, you and I were doing this a couple of nights ago. There yeah. were numerous references that the twin towers, which were a symbol of capitalism, and that's they, why they represent. Yeah.
9: Capitalist and American supremacy over yeah. capital. It's like it's it's, yeah. it's like the American supremacy of the economic system yeah. and and a, it, sim, and, a, and like a, a reified symbol of capitalism. Almost like it's like it's like an idol to yeah. like to the god of capital.
5: Yeah, uh, uh, there's a there's a number of different things you can find making this point. But in a column that published on nine twelve, uh, the Washington Post editorial board wrote: For three decades, the twin towers of New York's World Trade Center stood as the symbol of a American economic might, as powerful an icon for capitalism as the Statue of Liberty is for freedom. Exactly. Exactly.
8: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
5: Yeah, It's amazing. No, people were just saying this shit the day after. And the other
8: thing that's funny about it is like, no one thought this before. Like, these are cheap fucking buildings. Like, the World Trade Center is like a license. Like, it's it's literally, it's just a, like, license. It's a name that's licensed out.
5: It's like... (laughs) That, yeah. but that doesn't... Because again, what, what you... By, by saying this, when they're saying like for three decades, this was the symbol of American economic might, people, and I keep going back to my parents, but I think they represent a lot of Americans, saw the defeat of the Soviet Union as being achieved by the U.S. economy, by capitalism, yeah. right?
9: And and that's the thing that ended
5: history. That's the thing that got them to their neoliberal paradise. It's the thing that saved them from the nukes. And so by taking these towers down, bin Laden basically killed Superman, Right? That's how they're reacting to it. Yeah. Um... George Bush and Christopher Hitchens and the Washington Post editorial board, they all saw their support for war not as, as not based in religion. All of them would have denied this, right? Um, but Kavanaugh argues that they were motivated primarily by what he calls the civil religion of the United States, which is why I've been using that term. I'm gonna quote from his paper again. The United States has its own civil religion, which, though relying on the support of Christians and undoubtedly borrowing much from Christian imagery, transcends mere sectarian religion to unite all Americans on a higher ground. Indeed, this is what makes secularism compatible with civil religion. What Robert Bella calls traditional religion is privatized while civic rituals revolve around a generic God who underwrites America's identity and purpose in the world. In this sense, Andrew Sullivan is right. This is a religious war. The war of which 9-11 was a significant marker is not extremist and expansionist religion against a peace-loving and neutral secularist order. It is rather the violent confrontation of Islamist terrorism with the civil religion of America. American expansionism, that is, the evangelical insistence that liberal social order is the only viable kind of social order. It is what Tariq Ali has called the clash of fundamentalisms. And I think that's important because I think one area in which the left really got things wrong in sort of their interpretation of what happens in this period is seeing it as a clash between kind of Christian fundamentalists as embodied by George Bush and Islamic fundamentalists. No, no, no. The people who were leading this country, including Bush but including most of the liberals were America fundamentalists. They were fundamentalists in the idea of the secular American state. And so were my parents as conservative as they were. My family it was never about, you know, Christianity needing to be spread over there. It was about this this belief in America as something holy and that something holy and sacred had been struck on September 11th.
8: I will say I I I I think I I don't know. It's easy for me to see why people think about this on the left sort of as this Christian holy war. Because, like, I grew up with a lot of people who, like, in the wake of this, who, like, really were full on into the crusade thing. Like, I had classmates who would talk about how they were going to join the military to kill all Muslims. Like, there was, I mean, like, I I think this is a real thing. Sure, and that's what, I mean, that's sort of analytic
5: wrong. That's what, that's what Kavanaugh is saying, and that it's kind of scaffolded on Christianity, but like, that's fun, uh, fundamentally, like, the fact that there are some people who are going in there being like, this is finally a religious crusade, doesn't mean that's like what the leadership of the country is doing. And as I'm about to to, I think that's part of why we get Trump and the current Christian extremist surge, is that uh, it's a reaction to how kind of the neocons go with this, because... For the neocons, this isn't really about – this isn't about – Christianity is something you use in this fight, but, like, that's not what you're fighting for here. Um, And I think there's there's a good amount of evidence for the fact that Americans identified something as being, like, holy about the Twin Towers, particularly after the attack – Um, from Kavanaugh's study in public theology, quote, an August 2010 poll found that 56% of Americans regard Ground Zero as sacred ground and a slightly larger majority opposes construction of a mosque nearby for this region. A sacred aura surrounds the identity of the nation that was attacked on that day and the attacks concentrated that sacredness in a particular location and time. It is not necessary to go back to the more famously evangelical George W. Bush to make the link between piety and 9-11. In his speech at Ground Zero last September 11, 2010 Barack Obama talked about gathering at this sacred hour on hallowed ground and talked about how those who were not only killed But sacrificed in the attacks. God was invoked of course But it was a generic God who belonged to no particular faith because as Obama made clear the victims themselves were of many faiths Yeah, this is I mean one of the things that I think is interesting if you're actually trying to Analyze this and you want to see kind of the degree to which why I think it's important to look at how people treated the space itself is sacred, is how actual religion responded in the wake of 9-11 and how Americans responded to religion in the wake of 9-11. Because, you know, it says there about 56% of the country see this as like hallowed ground in some way. Um, And I I think there's evidence that people kind of rose up to defend this civic religion more than they actually did their real faiths. Um, And this is because primarily the reaction on a on a population basis to September 11th is that religiosity in the United States continued to decline, right? There's a public idea that it led to this like surge of people coming back to the church and getting religious again, but there's really no demographic evidence to back that up. And I want to quote from an article I found in Christianity Today. For a few weeks after 9-11, people packed the pews, but it soon became apparent there was not a great awakening or a profound change in America's religious practices, as Frank M. Newport, Gallup poll editor in chief, told the New York Times in November of 2001. Barna Group confirmed that conclusion in 2006. It tracked 19 dimensions of spirituality and beliefs and found none of those 19 indicators were statistically different from pre-attack measures. In other words, the 9-11 attacks didn't put American Christians on a trajectory towards more orthodox beliefs or more consistent habits of prayer, church attendance, or scripture reading. Insofar as we can measure matters of faith, the decline of American religiosity continued apace. Spiritually speaking, said Barna's David Kinneman, it's as if nothing significant ever happened. And that's something evangelicals have had to grapple with ever since. The U.S. did not turn back to God demographically. And while hateful attacks against Muslims surged, you have to acknowledge that a lot of those were from people who were more or less secular um, in the traditional sense. And this is part of why so many of the online atheists set uh, sided with the alt-right in 2015 and 2016, right? It's because there a lot of those people um, while they would have described themselves as an opposition to Christianity as well, were very much a part of the same civic religion as everybody else and were willing to engage in racist attacks against members of religion as a result of that. You know, when when you look at the fact that a majority of Americans saw Ground Zero as sacred and opposed building a mosque because of that, a decent chunk of those people are not Christians who oppose the building of a mosque, right? They're a religious or they're atheist and they oppose the building of a mosque because they still see Islam as an enemy. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting. But Americans were not moved to embrace religion by the attacks um, and the deterioration of our sense of security that followed. And I think that evangelicals have never been able to actually accept this. A 2013 Barna Group survey found that most Americans, but particularly born-again Christians, believe 9-11 quote, made people turn back to God. And this again has led to kind of a fetishization of the period right after 9-11. The writer of that Christianity Today article I cited earlier theorizes quote, my first suggestion is what we thought was hope wasn't lost at all. It was less Christian trust and character and redemption of God than American optimism coated with not quite biblical bromides that, when there's bad, good will follow. Americans love to believe that everything happens for a reason, and that after a short period of time, sorrow will always turn into joy and suffering into sanctifications. Uh, we quote Romans 8:28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, and incorrectly interpret it to mean that everything that happens to us will also somehow work Out okay, and I think that they're onto something here. And this really this goes back to what Kavanaugh was saying about how this civil religion is kind of grafted on over the bones of Christianity, right? Um, And it's it's there's so much. Part of what's interesting to me here is that, well, I think it's it's worthwhile that he quotes Romans eight twenty eight. I have to think that this this belief that Americans have that everything happens for a reason is at least as undergirded by like Disney as it is with scripture. It's undergirded by the way we tell stories, by the way fiction yeah. works in our society, which is a, a very a unique to us. Right, every culture does not tell stories the same way. Well, and and I think like if you want to trace that out
8: too, like I think that's part of the reason why. People are so unbelievably into conspiracy theories here. Yeah. If everything needs to have a reason that
9: it's part of an overarching grand narrative that ties everything together.
5: Yeah. And it, obviously, again, I don't want to, like underplay and perhaps we should do an episode of maybe behind the bastards on the reaction of the religious right to 9-11 which was nuts and vi- it was I, vicious yeah. and horrific i'm not i'm not trying to deny that but i think one of the things that happens in this period is they grow increasingly infuriated that that is not shared by a majority of the country that it doesn't bring a religious revival right that that doesn't follow september 11th um Now, it is kind of... There's a couple of things that are interesting here. Um, One of them is that uh, the apocalyptic Christian believers, they do have kind of this this in with the Bush administration. We know that at one point a bunch of apocalyptic like Christian representatives, like people who are kind of heading churches and stuff that believe, there's this belief among certain Christians that you need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and bring about the end of days and all this stuff. There's a bunch of shit that has to happen in Palestine in order for the apocalypse to come and they're trying to get US presidents to make it happen. This is why Trump made some of the calls that he made was to deliberately like give those people a win Um, Which is why some of the shit that happened in Jerusalem during the Trump administration um, was able to happen. All of that stuff is stuff that they went to George Bush. They had a two-hour meeting with him and Elliot Abrams and a bunch of his staff uh, where these representatives of kind of like the Pentecostal movement tried to get him to carry out this wish list policy of acts around Israel and Iraq to help them bring about the rapture. And the Bush administration didn't really do any of that. They have to take the meeting, right? They bring these guys in. They don't give them what they want. It's not until Trump. Trump, that a lot of these guys get what they want, and what you what happens here? Because you've got this this death cult Christian group who see this as a crusade and who want a war with Islam, and they're constantly frustrated by the fact that even though he's supposed to be their guy, Bush doesn't go all the way for them, right? And this is part of why his military adventurism gets criticized effectively by guys like Trump who win the evangelical right, because the evangelicals say like, well, if we're not going to have a holy war, then like, what was this stuff? We just wasted a bunch of money and a bunch of treasure and a bunch of young men for nothing over there. Um, And that's part of like what Trump wins on. Now, these two factions, these neocons, the guys who wind up, by the way, the guys who are sort of on the civic religion side of the response to 9-11 are all the people who wind up. Running the Lincoln Project, right? When you're talking about the yes. Republicans yes. on that yes. side of things, yeah. And then the part, the folks who break off, the evangelicals, the people who want a holy war, that's who winds up making the core of Trump's support. Yeah. Um. And yeah. And that's uh. I, I think mostly where I'm going to leave us for today on nine twelve next week. We'll have another special episode about Glenn Beck's nine twelve project that will be kind of the finishing of this. But I want to end because we're talking about why I did this and why I started by talking about jokes about 911 is because I think understanding understanding the attack on the towers as like an attack on what what had effectively become a god to a lot of Americans even if they didn't realize it right the sanctity of this kind of neoliberal capitalist order and its 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 um its historic inevitability right uh, the fact that that's what was going on That 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 was so dear to people that justified so much violence 20 years of of war of bombings millions of deaths is part of why I think there's a value in joking about 9/11, which is not to say that what happened wasn't terrible. Three, three thousand and change innocent people were murdered, um, in a in a truly horrific way. If you actually sit down and watch the footage, the people falling out of the buildings, it's a nightmare. If you think about stuff like Flight 93, it's it's really stirring. You have these people who one moment they're heading to like see their families or go on a work trip or something. You're on a fucking plane an experience. I'm sure everybody has where you're just like trying to get from A to B, and in the space of like a few minutes they have to all decide they're going to charge a bunch of terrorists, fight in hand-to-hand combat, and then pilot a plane into the ground in order to stop it from killing other people. That's that's powerful stuff. Um, what what I think is important is desacralizing it, because there's nothing sacred about mass murder, um, and there's nothing—we there's we shouldn't see what happened there as anything but what it is, which is a tragic— um, a tragic act of violence against innocent people, but taking it as like an attack on our soul as an attack on like our, our collective God. Um, when you start to do that again, it it kind of justifies any sort of violence. Like there's nothing, there's nothing that's off the table. And in, in the first few years after nine 11, there was nothing off the table. Um, and we're, we're never getting back to, the world that we had before, which is ultimately like what all that violence was about, right? All of everything terrible that was done in the wake of 9-11 was justified, even if the people didn't say it, in the desire to get back to where we were in the 90s, right? In their heads, in their sense of security. I'm not talking about anything as like coarse as economic projections. I'm talking about in the sense of like optimism and, and basic security. And I think one of the people who got this best in the immediate wake of the attack uh, was Hunter S. Thompson, who, you know, was still alive at that point for a couple of years, and he wrote a column, I think it was for ESPN.com, because that's who he was writing for in those days. His career was well past its peak, Um, but he wrote probably the best thing anyone wrote a week after 9-11, and I'm going to read you the end of that now. We are at war now, according to President Bush, and I take him at his word. He also says this war might last for a very long time. Generals and military scholars that will tell you that 8 or 10 years is actually not such a long time in the span of human history, which is no doubt true. But history also tells us that 10 years of martial law and a wartime economy are going to feel like a lifetime to people who are in their 20s today. The poor bastards of what will forever be known as Generation Z are doomed to be the first generation of Americans who will grow up with a lower standard of living than their parents enjoyed this is extremely heavy news and it will take a while for it to sink in the 22 babies born in New York City while the World Trade Center burned will never know what they missed the last half of the 20th century will seem like a wild party for rich kids compared to what's coming now the party's over folks
9: yeah that is kind of the feeling uh, <laughs> yeah growing up in the early 2000s yeah. and not not knowing not never actually experiencing the 90s I mean, yeah in some ways you know 911 feels very similar to me as something like Pearl Harbor. Like they're both yeah. things that happened, I guess, before I was around and it just they created the world that I already existed in. Like it never it never like it you know, it 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 never changed the world I was in. It just yeah. it just
8: became the world that I was in. Yeah, for me 911 is my first memory. Like that is the first thing wow. I remember and I uh, yeah, we got exactly the world that you would expect. Yeah. from your first memory being nine eleven.
5: Yeah, it's um. I mean, again, for me, I think the thing I identify most is that little clip I played from South Park, where one of the kids is like, "Do you remember when everything didn't suck?" He's like, "Not really." <laughs> um. So yeah. Uh. Go out. Um. Tell a tasteful joke about nine eleven. And uh, try not to worship the state. It doesn't end well. <laughs> hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
2: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media.
9: For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
1: Right rug flooring.